Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. A couple of great callers. I know, I know, maybe I say that every week, but every week, I really believe that that's the case. The first caller wanted to know, Steph, why, oh why, were you a socialist in your youth? What was your thinking? How did you come about it? And what changed? And we also did have a quick sprint through the history of socialism and communism and cultural Marxism and all that kind of stuff, culminating in the uh, somewhat hysterical political correctness climate that we live under, such as it is now. The second caller wanted to know why we turn to athletes and sports media personalities and so on for inspiration or guidance in moral or philosophical arenas. And it's a great question. So we talked about the role of sports uh, and thinking and leadership and all that kind of stuff uh, with some reference to uh, recent uh, activities or I guess inactivities with regards to the national anthem by Colin Kaepernick. So the third caller wanted to know whether I accepted that human beings were injecting more CO2 into the atmosphere and whether that had an effect on climate. And uh, we went through a good deal of my perspectives on this. Some things that I think could be done environmentally that are a little bit more manageable than getting all governments around the world to try and limit their economic growth. So it was a great call on climate change. It's been a while since we've talked about it, so I really, really appreciated that. Now, the fourth caller was a black guy. The reason that's important is he wanted to talk about whether blacks benefited from segregation uh, way back in the day, of course. I guess I had to give my perspective or opinion on that. And then we had a very wide-ranging discussion about a variety of topics that I think you'll find very interesting, everything from the economic incentives for babies uh, in Japan uh, to uh, just about everything else that you could think of under sun or moon. It was a really, really great call with a great caller, and I appreciated it enormously, just as I appreciate you, hopefully, thinking about dropping by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And use our affiliate link, please, if you don't mind. You've got some shopping to do at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. All right, up first today is John. John wrote in and said, I've been frequenting your videos for the last several months now and really enjoying the discourses you've had about global politics, political correctness, economics, and feminism. You've mentioned several times you used to be a socialist when you were in college. What were some of the things you've been told or read that made you believe for a brief period of time that such a system could work? Did it by chance originate from the Marxist rantings of a disgruntled economics professor who bore a personal grudge against the so-called evils of capitalism? Or did you at a certain point develop any personal gripes about the free market capitalism yourself? Well, hey, John, how are you doing tonight? How are you, Stephen? Uh, I'm well. Uh, that's two things wrong. Uh, it's Stefan, not Stephen, which is fine, of course. Oh, it's- but um, also, uh, it's not. it wasn't college. By the time I got to college... Yeah. Uh, I was a capitalist, but uh, when I was in my teens, uh, sort of early to mid-teens, uh, I was—I um, wasn't sort of an uh, ideologically aware and and well-read socialist. But I do remember very clearly saying uh, to someone that what Canada needs is a healthy dose of more social of additional socialism or more socialism. Uh, I just had uh, a goopy, huggy bear kind of positive view of socialism and uh, could not really have told you much about all of the theoretical underpinnings behind it. But uh, it was definitely, uh, it had a sort of rosy glow to it, if that makes any sense. Right. Did you happen to live in uh, Quebec by any chance? No, I I lived in Quebec for a couple of years. Um, 
two, two years when I was uh, at the National Theatre School. Yeah. And uh, then two years when I was at McGill. Uh, so I lived in Montreal for a couple of years. But, uh, that, that, you know, it's pretty Anglo. Yeah, because I was I was asking you that because because uh, from what I heard, the welfare state over there is pretty pretty large, and uh, unemployment is also like slightly higher than let's say California. It's like it's like <laughs> infrastructure is is crumbling. It's not not well maintained. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they they don't have jobs. They're actually just living on handouts. So yeah, that's why I ask because uh, yeah. you were a socialist in your earlier earlier years. There has to be like some kind of, some kind of like environmental uh, factor to it. Like you, you were surrounded by all this, you know, all these. Oh no, man! You don't need to go to. You don't need to go to Quebec for that. Yeah. You just need to be raised by a single mom. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. Well, raised by a single mom. I mean, what what a single mom think about government redistribution on average? I mean, I don't know if anyone's actually run the numbers, but it would be interesting to know if they have, and if anybody out there knows of a study like this, let me know. But I don't think anyone's run those numbers. But uh, if you are raised by people who are significantly dependent on the state, right, right, then, and and you know, single moms, you know, because you know, every time we talk about this, you know, I hear, and, and it's it's fair to say, it's a fair point to make. People say, well, my my mom was a single mom, and she, well, we, there's a couple of things. Let me just sort of clarify. First of all, people say. My husband died and I'm a single mom. Now, technically, that's not what single mom means. Uh, if your husband died, very sympathetic, of course, but the term is widow, not yeah, yeah. single mom. Single mom is somebody who uh, the father is not around to some degree by choice. Uh, you chose the wrong man or you drove away the right man or something like that. But right, right, right. the father is not around um, at, at some level or, or, or to some degree of choice. So I just sort of want to make that point. Other people say, well, uh, but my mom was a single mom and she worked two jobs and she never took a dime of, of, of government money. And, uh, you know, she taught us the work ethic and all these kinds of good things. And I, I understand and appreciate that perspective as well. But... Um, that's obviously a rarity. And secondly, if she is working two jobs, who the hell is raising you? Right, that's true. You know, she may, she may be single. <laughs> she may even be a mom. But putting those two together, uh, she may be, uh, is, is kind of tough, right? Because you just don't have uh, as many resources. You don't have as much time. You don't have as much, you know, all these kinds of things. So I sort of wanted to mention that aspect of things um, as well, and say, well, I never took a dime of government money. Well, the question with, with regards to single moms, single parents, is this. Are they net contributors or net withdrawals from the social pool of tax dollars? Right, yeah. And uh, say, well, I never took a dime of government money. Well, you do if your tax bill doesn't cover your kids' public school education. Right then, you then you are taking government money, and that's that's just math. That's not that's not single motherhood in particular. That's just math. If you're uh, taking out more than you put in, then you're more likely to be pro-socialist, pro-redistribution of wealth. I mean, well, of course, some single mothers might take it if they have rich parents, rich uh, rich father or someone like that. Maybe they'll get some get they'll get a large bulk of their support from from that source. Uh, but either way, like 
from what I what I have seen is that single motherhood tends to be someone else's burden in the long run. You know. Well, that th- that is still somebody else's burden if your parents are footing the bills. Right. Yeah, it's you're still taking you're still taking out of society more than you're putting in. It's just this in this case it happens to be voluntary. So, um, and, and that uh, you know, it's a very rare it's a very rare circumstance. Um, but uh, so you know, being raised by a single mom and being around single moms uh, as you tend to be in that kind of environment, you know, n- not a lot of single moms pitch in tent in the Hamptons. Right. And uh, so what happens? Well, you you grow up with a vaguely positive sense of socialism. Because the state is your daddy, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, so, so yeah. I just where, where did I get it from? Well, you know, got it from government schools, of, of course, right? Um, the the church that the church various churches that I attended when I was younger uh, didn't tend to do a lot of economics, but there is a sort of blurring in a lot of people's minds about taking care of the poor and the welfare state, and. Uh, that is, uh, you know, the welfare state is a violation of free will. It's a violation of voluntary association. It's a violation of property rights. And I don't think any of those, I, I, think, I, I think all of those violations pretty much go against basic tenets of, of Christianity, for sure. Other religions, I'm sure, as well. So um, I think it just generally came from, you know, the, uh, you know what it's like with kids' stories. Who's, who's the bad guy? The rich. In a lot of kids' stories. Yeah, the rich guy, it's the... The, the capitalist, the Scrooge, the, the evil land developer who wants to, I don't know, set fire to baby bunnies and <laughs> to build his, his evil mall. Uh, but whatever. Right? It's also kind of funny that you see those movies in a theater built by an evil land developer who wants to, <laughs> wants to please children by building movie theaters. But anyway, so it's just a general, you know, then you get into video games. Leandry Corporation has pitted human beings against cyborgs for 4,000 years of infinite bloodshed of gladiatorial evil. Will you join them? It's all this kind of stuff, right? And I mean, even um, you Ridley can Scott's literally, Alien. You can literally make yeah. a movie upon, a, like, you can literally create a story about, like, the protagonist being some, some really poor guy who hasn't really been keeping, keeping up with his rent and is living on welfare, and his evil landlord is, like, at least three days away from kicking him out and you know you can like create this whole scenario and make a movie out of it and pretty much paint this paint a broad brush about you know how evil all, all those all those uh, plantation owners and you know job creators really are you know they're the ones who call the shots they're also the ones who are, who are getting paid to provide you uh, something of value you know in, in which case you know the a space to live in or you know something else yeah a lot of people's heartache and heartbreak is concentrated on economic structures that they barely understand. Right. And I think that's, uh, so, so it wasn't the fault of the university professors, uh, although I'm sure they would have liked to contribute to it. Many of them would have liked to if they could. Right. Uh, but by then I was, I was well girded for combat. So did you, did you question your, your, your university professors if, if that ever, you know, if it ever came? Did I question my university? Pro- oh Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was full tilt combat uh, in university. Just raised your hand and you know, kind of come across as this, you know, smug know-it-all nerd. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe I did, but um, uh, yeah, I just, and I, I remember uh, one one professor who uh, the, it was the last day in class, and he'd made his case uh, throughout the year, and uh, I made a passionate case at the end, and he basically just looked at me and shrugged and says, "Well." If that's what you believe, I guess we have to agree to disagree. <laughs> and uh, I don't really think that's the point of education. 
is to say, well, you say one thing, I say the opposite. And, and the other thing, too, is that, and as I pointed out, when he said that, I said, well, being afraid, you know, being allowed to disagree is the essence of freedom, which is not socialism. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. I mean, am I, am I allowed to disagree with socialist policies? No. Is a socialist allowed to disagree with the policy of some particular capitalist organization? Of course. Yeah. They don't have to, you know, if they don't like the way that Walmart treats its shopping carts, they can boycott Walmart. And that's perfectly fine, perfectly legitimate, perfectly fair. They can organize other people right. to boycott Walmart if they don't like. They can set up a competitor to Walmart. They can uh, design something that makes Walmart redundant, like, I don't know, uh, drones that deliver things through your plumbing. <laughs> Do not order the jetpack through the toilet. But, uh, yeah, there's tons of things that people can do if they disagree. No, agree to disagree is the essence of freedom. It's the essence of free speech. But uh, so it was, it was just kind of funny to me that this guy who was, you know, I think a pretty hardcore lefty uh, was uh, was saying, well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. It's like that's kind of not the point of your system <laughs> as far as I understand it. But. Isn't the professor's job to uh, uh, give you facts rather than conjecture and tirades and whatever else you know to just, just yeah i mean i remember reading a, a book um uh some of this you know some of this this uh i don't know there's something i don't i don't know how to put it very well but this is just a personal observation there's no philosophy in it but there's i've always found something very sleep inducing about socialist texts i mean i've read a lot of them right and for one thing they're supremely Unfunny. I know. I like Ayn Rand, but uh, <laughs> they're supremely unfunny. Uh, you know, they're not leavened by the Ann Coulter-style open-mouthed wit that uh, uh, can can occur. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's turgid. It's boring. And and worse, the, the greatest sin is it's predictable. I mean, you know what the stance is going to be on every single issue before you read it. And um, and then if you start really following the footnotes, which was kind of tough back in the day, like uh, when I was back in college, there was no internet. And uh, yeah, so now you want to follow the footnotes and find the source study and get the data. I mean, it's not not a huge deal. Right. But uh, back then, you had to write pen and paper to the researchers and hope that they cared about anything you had to say uh, and were willing to respond, which some were. But uh, I, was, I remember reading there was a book talking about how uh, large corporations use the power of the state to further their own economic interests. You know, they... Mm. They, they get lobbyists and they, you know, and, uh, you know, when he would sort of resolutely glare away from me and ask if anybody had any comments on the book and I'd put my hand up until it was like a statue. And I, I just said, well, of course, of course they do. This is why there should be a separation of state and economics, which I actually thought was a very common term back then. Maybe it's not, you know, you say separation of church and state, you know. But anyway, separation of state and economics. Yeah, the government should not have the power to provide benefits to corporations in an economic sense. Um, and of course, but his solution, of course, was that there should, I don't know, I, I'm conjecturing, it's probably something like there should be no corporations and the government should run anything, run everything. And it's like, I, I don't think, that doesn't magically erase incentives for economic advantage, you know, just government, magic. Yeah. <laughs> or the government that represents the people, which, you know, rarely ever comes and comes to fruition yeah it's yeah. always going to deviate from that original goal but uh what i found uh kind of bizarre was that you're an atheist who kind of seems to lean towards being like a traditionalist in terms of like relationships and marriage and the nuclear family so, so like 
Can you tell me a little bit about how how that came about? Like, were you before before that? Were you? I just uh, I got so tired of orgies, um, <laughs> as you can imagine. I'm just kidding. Um, well, I mean, I've, I don't know what to say. Traditionalist. Um, the the question for me is, where do things settle when we have freedom? That is always the big question for me, and it's going to be a bit of a theme uh, this evening. But where do things settle when we actually have some freedom? Right. Well, if you want to raise children, is one person better or is two people better? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm curious what, what you think. It's a team effort on well, equal parts. Uh, you know. Right. No, that's, but which is better, one or two? Two. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's just a basic fact. Now, you could say three are better, but then you run afoul of evolution. Because if there's two people, then assuming that there's no orbiting of the Jupiter-sized cuck planet that seems to inhabit the modern world, then you both have mixed your genetic material together to make uh, a baby. And so you both have an equal incentive from a biological standpoint to raise that child in a in a positive way ensure that child's survival and if you have three well one person is is out of the loop right one person is most likely let's god let's hope so is sort of out of the loop yeah and uh they're just not going to have the same uh, same incentives and uh, the biological imperative uh, is going to reassert itself and there's going to be problems uh, so you want stability and so the two parent household is economically for the best. It is evolutionarily for the best. And I'm not a big one for rewriting human nature. Right. That is, um, that is the, the great sadistic fantasy of the utopians, which is, you know, Marx, Marxism says you need a new Soviet man. You need a new economic man. You need uh, human beings to be free of dastardly impulses towards um, selfishness. They, they must be selfless. They must sacrifice. They must not care whether other people are working hard or not. They must contribute to the maximum no matter what. Right. And so the, you need a new type of human being. You need someone who is not going to have preferential feelings for his or her own children as opposed to you know, just put him as wards of the state to be raised by everyone and the, the destruction of the nuclear family. And, and so you need and, you know, it's scientific. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing with scientific. Marxism, I mean, it's all nonsense because it ignores the most important science in these areas of evolution, that we are finely tuned instruments that have developed over at least hundreds of thousands of years and certainly going all the way back a lot further. And um, we, we, you can't just change that. You can't just say, well... Um, Let's make a non-organic human being. Let's make a human being with the opposite characteristics of all of evolutionary impulses towards in-group preferences, towards uh, uh, a preference for your own children as opposed to other children, for you know, all these things. And I've never been a big one for, okay, well, we can, let's, 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 let's start from scratch. <laughs> let's just wipe the slate clean. And assume that we can create exactly the kind of human being that we want for our economic or political system to flourish. And because 
I am a evolutionary realist, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, I just it doesn't work. And of course, if it did work, you wouldn't need a whole new system. If you had some magic way to change human beings, you wouldn't need a whole new system. You'd just walk around with your magic wand and, and change them. You know, like the guys in Men in Black who can zap your memory. You just, boom, there you go. I right. touched you with a hair of Marx's beard, and now you have um, no, <laughs> no, no preference for your own children, and uh, you are willing to work uh, for the good of the common uh, and submit to a strangely non-flattened hierarchy of... <laughs> Uh, uh, economic uh, of an economic cigarette so I just accept that and you know there is that old prayer uh, God grant me the courage to change the things I can the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference and that is uh, very important and the to me the the culmination of this recognition that human beings are not you know, not like die bulb machines to be <laughs> reprogrammed on a, on a whim, but uh, we have a, a, a dense biological, psychological, sociological, genetic heritage that has evolved, and it's, it's still in the process of evolving, of course, and we can't just throw that out and imagine we're starting with some other, other kind of thing. And um, recognizing that, the ultimate recognition that human beings will always tend to seek power at the expense of others, not because there's anything bad or wrong, it's just because we're animals. We are very cool animals. And we will always, always try to seek power over others because the purpose of evolution is not virtue, but success, reproductive success. And human beings, as I said many years ago in the story of your enslavement, are the most profitable livestock for human beings to own. And you can't have that kind of profit availability and not have people use it. And so as long as human beings have the power to control other human beings, significant proportions of the, will, will inevitably be drawn to do so. It's just too profitable. It's too profitable. And given that that's not going to change, and, and that's not specific to human beings. That is, all animals will attempt to exploit their environment for maximum resources and minimum effort. That's perfectly natural, and uh, this is not bad. But recognizing that when, when you have a state, then people... The state is like power-seeking on steroids, because people will forever use the power of the state to gain control over other human beings' resources without the personal risk of <laughs> confronting them directly, right? That's, that's the big problem with the state, is the state abstracts the pillaging of group by group, individual by individual, and it is enforced a long way away, and, and you get a nice bland check in the mail, uh, or you get a nice apartment, or whatever. You get uh, magic money bits deposited into your bank account, and there's no personal risk, right? What used to minimize violence was the personal risk of, I want to go take something from this guy. Well, he might be a ninja, right? He might be uh, someone who has uh, significant pushback, let's say. And with the state, that just goes like through the roof. And uh, so I just recognize that uh, a voluntary society, uh, in the long run, a stateless society, 
is the only thing that that is in accordance with what we know about everything that is organic, which is the the will to power, uh, the strive for dominance, and the strive to reproduce. And uh, the sad thing is, it doesn't even work with the state for very long, because I mean, as you can see, um, the desire to control others and gain their resources uh, for reproductive fitness, the increases in socialism and state control of the economy and education in the West has led to a catastrophic decline, a cratering of birth rates. So, uh, because power without responsibility always turns to hedonism. So, sorry for that long ramble, but I hope that makes some sense about at least where I'm coming from. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, you know, when I, I noticed uh, that uh, when, when I found the connection between, uh, let's say, a single motherhood, you know, the, this uh, growing rate of single, single motherhood and uh, socialism and, and the need for state intervention, uh, the intervention of, interventions of the state, you know, that's, that's when I realized, you know, maybe, maybe the, these Christians, these conservatives are onto something uh, when they talk about the the death of the family when they talk about the uh, the complete the complete d- disappearance of you know these traditional family values and uh, the more people sure. uh, descend into hedonism and and become more self centered uh, we we see these we see these patterns repeating themselves over and over that uh, you know nuclear family you know tends tends to produce uh, families tend to produce uh, more productive uh, members of society, and and then you get the single moms who raise their kids to become government dependent, and you see these two. Uh, it's it's like two sides of a coin that that's uh, that's like a dying currency. Well, it's important to remember too that Christianity has already gone through a number of societal collapses. Right. Right. So the the. The wisdom that is contained within certain aspects of, you know, pro-family, pro-responsibility, pro-free market Christianity, well, those are hard-won lessons. Right. And so, having gone through a, a wide variety of social collapses in its history, it has accumulated some lessons that nobody wants to listen to anymore. And, uh, and you know, there is a, I don't know have an answer for this, I'm still sort of mulling it over, but looking across the world, if you look at societies in decline or societies in expansion, and you say, the societies that defer the most to women, are they expanding or declining? And the societies that defer the least to women, are they expanding or declining? And uh, that is, it could be causal, it could be coincidental, but uh, it is an important aspect because, you know, the great promise was, uh, you know, we give uh, all of these wonderful rights to women. And in many ways, now they have more rights than men. And uh, society is going to be just plain old wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm obviously for equality before the law because I'm a universalist. But um, I'm not sure it's panning out quite as the brochure <laughs> said it would. I mean, uh, I think I lost my train of thought. Hold on. Uh, uh, going back to the uh, the universities, um, how long uh, was this whole uh, debacle with cultural Marxism and uh, and 
the social justice and all, all these all these different things. How long ha- has this phenomenon? Phenom- phenom- oh, tongue twister. How long has this has this phenomenon been taking place? Like, uh, wh- where does it start? Like, where do you think it, it came from? Like, how uh, and how was it? Yeah, you know, how was it allowed to grow to such a point that we have things like you know uh, these protests and you know these kids blocking entrances to you know uh, to uh, these conservative speakers like Ben Shapiro and Milo Yiannopoulos? You know, uh, a lot of that has been happening in my hometown. So it's c- c- kind of sad. Uh, it's a really sad thing to see. Uh, how long do you think this this has been culminating culminating for? Like, uh, is there like a particular starting point, or was it just maybe was it always there? Well, I mean, I'm I'm no big expert on the history of cultural Marxism, so I'm just going to give you a couple of very broad strokes that may be subject to future revision, but. Um, this is the same virus that uh, hit Europe in the 1920s and the 1930s. And it is the same virus that uh, contributed significantly to the huge decline in Western society in Europe. And then, um, you know, the, the, and communists, and since we're talking about Marxism, are the communists that, that took over a third of the globe in the first half of the 20th century. I mean, it was, a, it was an astonishingly successful movement. Astonishingly successful movement. Uh, almost without precedent in human history. A third of the globe in 30, 40 years. 30 or 40 years. Well, that's because they were committed. And that's why I point out the value of commitment to your particular causes. Hopefully for virtue, and <laughs> don't be committed if you're a bad guy, but uh, they generally tend to be. And so, in uh, Europe, uh, they kind of mess things up. And, uh, you know, this is to a much smaller degree, but um, the danger of, I mean, Europe feeling that it was in danger of succumbing to communism in the uh, 1920s and in particular in the 1930s. The fear of the Red Scare really originated in the 1930s because there was, of course, the perception and well promulgated by those on the left that capitalism had failed because of the Great Depression, because you had 25% unemployment grinding on year after year, massive amounts of business failures, bank runs, um, a worse than moribund economy. Right. And so the Marxists, of course, seized upon all of this, as they would be wont to do, and said, well, you see, this is exactly what we predicted, that we've reached the end of capitalism, and now we must have communism in order to make everything better, uh, in order to fix everything. And uh, this was, of course, in full accordance with Marxist theory, which is that uh, uh, to gain a communist society, you have to go from feudalism through to capitalism, feudalism, industrialization, capitalism, and then you get communism. And... They had a bit of a kink in the theory and that the two biggest countries that went communist, Russia and China, were not, had not gone through the capitalist phase first. But that's neither here nor there at the moment. And so there was this desperate fear in Europe uh, after they saw what happened in Russia in particular. Um, of course, China didn't go communist till after the Second World War. But uh, in Russia, they, they saw the communists come into power and slaughter millions and millions of citizens. And 
it was um, terrifying to people in Europe in the 1930s. And they could not, you know, they had lost the basic premise of the free market and they didn't have enough strong intellectuals pushing back against the collectivism of uh, all of these New Deal policies that were not just in America, but other places in Europe. As all the governments that were bereft of small market people or, or free market people, small government people, they attempted to struggle with this catastrophic depression by layering in more layers of government bureaucracy and higher taxes and more government redistribution because the ideological battle had been won by the Fabian socialists uh, at the early part of the 20th century where they uh, had made a very strong case. This is H.G. Wells, I think, George Bernard Shaw uh, and others, uh, and they basically made a very strong case for um, socialism uh, through plays and through art and, and poetry, novels, uh, lots of, you know, they, they, in, in the way that now, of course, the, the leftists are trying to win the art wars. Right. And not, I think, succeeding as much anymore. Uh, but um, so this, this desperate terror of communism uh, provoked uh, fascism. And now fascism, of course, was in other areas as well. So it's, but there's a little bit of, of, of that, definitely that sort of tendency going on, the pendulum swing. And uh, fascism, it's a topic for another time, but uh, is, is a sort of vaguely primitive form of in-group preference that is not about freedom. Uh, it is about solidarity, usually to a, a nation or a, a race or some other kind of group. And uh, the, it is in direct contrast to globalism 1.0, which was communism. The communism was a, society, a system which, to be perfected, to, to be right, to, to achieve its full flower and fruition, had to be worldwide. And so whenever you try to gather and grab all of these disparate human groups and jam them into one category, things go badly. You can appeal to out-group preferences for a while, but then when the in-group starts to feel threatened, there's usually a backlash. And the globalism 1.0 was communism. And uh, globalism 2.0 is what's being referred to back and forth in the current American election. And uh, it is the same thing. You, you say to everyone, well, everyone should get jammed together and we should all live in the same area. And you have a very powerful state. See, again, I'm, I'm all for multiculturalism as long as you don't have this all-powerful state um, because I just can't be bothered to police who lives where. But I do think that with an all-powerful state, when you have large groups of different ideologies moving in that uh, have... Uh, some win-lose interactions uh, baked into the mix, then it's indistinguishable from religions. And we all know from the history of Europe that when religions, uh, when there was a powerful state that controlled religion, uh, controlled religious expression, then all the religions were trying to gain control of that state apparatus to impose their will on the other religions. And you had centuries of religious warfare, finally solved by the separation of church and state. Hopefully we won't need centuries of warfare to separate state and economics, but that globalism of communism made people feel very small because they were portrayed and viewed as cogs in a giant economic determinism machine. And when people feel very small, after a while, they get kind of pissed off and then they want to feel big again and then you get some sort of fascist or um, national socialist leader who uh, screams that they are the greatest thing since sliced bread and everyone's like, well, that's better because I was just feeling like a tiny cog in a socialist machine. So now, but then of course they swing to the other extreme and instead of wishing to 
destroy their own nation. They then wish to expand their nation and dominate others. And it's like, dudes, somewhere in the middle is fine <laughs> for now. <laughs> and um, so then when the war started, you know, the, the, the ideologues, not, not, not so good with the guns, right? They're not fighters. They're, you know, they're, they're academics, right? And so when the war started uh, and uh, throughout the war and certainly at the end of the war, they all left for America, uh, these guys. And then they took their positions because of the GI Bill. It vastly swelled American university roles. The GI Bill was like a, a sort of, in a way, a souped-up version of the student loan guarantees and student loan subsidies that the federal government is giving. It allows academia to expand too quickly. And uh, when you expand too quickly, you end up with much lower quality. That's inevitable, right? And... Like if you've got a week, if you've got a month to hire one person, you're probably going to get the best person. If you've got a week to hire a thousand people, well, <laughs> can you breathe? Okay, and you go, right? And so the European lefties and all that, uh, they all came to America. And because there was such a huge expansion, state-funded expansion of the university system, they had to hire people and there weren't enough native academics, so they hired a bunch of these Europeans who then got into their tenured positions and started spewing the same crap in the post-war period, which then flowered into the um, lefty collectivism hippie stuff of the 60s. And, of course, in that you had the giant bomb of the birth control pill, which um, I'll go into another time. I've got a bunch of notes about what I want to you know, it's like this, uh, you see the analogy before, it's like that big giant ball that almost crushes Indiana Jones in the first movie yeah. um, in terms of its impact on society. And the birth control bill's impact would not have been, I think, so substantially negative had there not also been a welfare state. But the birth control pill, in a sense, almost necessitated the welfare state because it unleashed sexuality or um, it uncoupled sexuality from monogamy. And when you uncouple sexuality from monogamy, you end up with a lot of single moms. And when you have a lot of single moms, you have to have a welfare state. So there was a bit of a retrenchment that occurred in the 80s with the rise of neoconservatism and uh, uh, Reagan and uh, Thatcher. And there was a, a pushback against this uh, rising tide of leftism. And I think it bought us another generation, which is great. Uh, it just sort of matter. like in the same way Joseph McCarthy bought us bought America a generation from being basically almost taken over by um, Soviet spies in the State Department. But um, there was a bit of a pushback, and I I was sort of fortunate in a way to be riding some of the wave of that pushback when I was in college. It wasn't so wildly outlandish. I mean, I was a little more so because I was an objectivist, but it wasn't so crazy to to have the positions that I was in. And uh, that uh, did not, uh, that did not last. That did not last for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into here. But um, there has been, of course, a, a redoubling down of uh, this uh, leftist imperative. This is uh, judging people by categories. And, uh, you know, for a group that, a group is, is, is not individualistic at all. Uh, all egalitarianism is collectivist. Because it, it posits the lie that we're all somehow fundamentally equal. You know, we're, we're all the same deep down. It's like, well, 
I guess we all have spines, but uh, well, except for Republicans, but um, it's it's the mental configuration that counts. Uh, and um, so, right now, there has been um, a, a big push for hiring, a big expansion of college. And again, when big expansions occur, in general, quality of uh, people go down. And um, whenever anything is uncoupled from being ruled by the discipline of the market, it just goes haywire. Right. It's just like the, the market is the great discipline that keeps you focused. Um, you know, when people say, because YouTube has uh, begun, it, it, the policy's been around for a while, but Paul Joseph Watson was just writing about that, you know, some of his videos have been demonetized because they're too controversial and so on. And that is uh, inevitable in, in many ways. And I, I don't have any particular problem with it. YouTube can do whatever it wants, and it's certainly not obligated. Uh, you know, if you have a product, you don't necessarily want it next to a very controversial video, which is something I've said many times over the years when people say, why don't you just monetize your videos? It's like, because I'm not an idiot. I mean, not that people who do are idiots. It's just that um, if that's your sole source of income, you're putting all your eggs in one basket, which as an entrepreneur, I don't like to do. <laughs> but... Um, uh, so this uh, uh, focus now is that there's this, this giant collectivism, there's this uh, group everyone by category, and there are, I think, um, there has been a general dumbing down of the curriculum over the past uh, 50 years for a variety of reasons. And you have uh, people now who oh, I think are in college, who a, a lot of whom don't know how to formulate a response to a challenging argument. And because of that inability or, or unwillingness or whatever it is, there then is a market for censorship or, or, or repression or not being exposed to these opposite arguments. And uh, it's in, in many ways the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is people think they're a lot better at things than they are. And you know, for some 18 or 19-year-old or 20-year-old to say, I know that uh, what so-and-so has to say is irredeemably wrong and bad and evil and this and that and the other, and therefore we should ban that person from coming to talk to people, is the height of arrogance that wise people would recoil from. I am extremely tentative when it comes to coming to conclusions about things because the amount of data, the amount of specialty, the amount of information... Is, is enormous in the world. And um, other than the basics like UPB and, and self-ownership and property rights and all that kind of stuff, I have a really tough time <laughs> coming to any conclusions. And I, I really, of course, believe that the best cure for bad speech is more speech, not um, exclusion. But uh, if you are unable or unwilling to make an argument um, against something you disagree with, which was the training. I don't know if it is anymore, but it was certainly the training I got in uh, high school. We had Model UN. We had uh, debate societies. Uh, I was vice president of a debate society in college and uh, did a lot of debating. And so opposite arguments, uh, shocking opinions don't, don't frighten me. I sometimes don't like them, <laughs> which is why I pour effort into um, hopefully debunking in a valuable way. But um, if somebody comes to me and says, uh, I think that we should have um, uh, the proletariat should own the means of production, I'm like, okay, well, um, tell me, <laughs> tell me more. I'm, I'm not going to get offended because you say that. 
Uh, I may get offended if you try to impose it using a giant state state apparatus, but uh, I'm not going to get offended if if this is the case that you want to make. Let's let's just chat it out. But uh, I read a, a report recently that said that in some places in America, the average grade 12 student is reading at a grade five and a half level. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah, and you know, they're what we struggled through uh, Shakespeare. Uh, I remember, um, I think it was in junior high, being in a uh, production of A Long Day's Journey Into Night. Not like a big production, like a, but a little production of A Long Day's Journey Into Night. Did a couple of scene studies with uh, my partner. Was it that? No, I'm sorry. Let me correct myself. That may, be, be, may have been a bit too dark for the kiddies. Um, it was um, Tennessee Williams' uh, Glass Menagerie. Not that, sorry. I just I still remember the there was a it was a foreign exchange student who I was working with a really nice young young girl and she had just the funniest accent when she was trying to do a southern accent with her blend of wherever she'd come from it was really quite quite funny but she was actually a pretty good actress but anyway um, so um, I, I think that people are have been sort of cruelly robbed of of the intellectual tools that they need to have conversations that are win win and. Uh, so now you end up with these conversations in colleges that are perceived as win-lose. Like if this person gets to speak, terrible, awful, disastrous, bad things will happen. You know, this sort of trigglypuff, uh, arm-shaking, screaming, racist, and all this sort of stuff, um, sexist, homophobic, and so on. Well, in my opinion, that that is, it's sort of a confession that you don't, really know what college is for you college i think ideally there should be fewer <laughs> and it should be more elite but it is for learning how to debate and having the sharpest minds with the best evidence bring the best case forward because society needs to make decisions and we need to have um as open a set of warring perspectives as we can to make sure that we get the best answers in the long run. So I hope that helps. It's a little bit of a sprint, but uh, I think that's my sort of uh, analysis of uh, where it came from. Oh, that's a mouthful. Uh, but uh, usually uh, I've engaged, uh, actually, I've engaged like a, I think a couple uh, seemingly well-read socialists. Uh, one, one of them uh, was my uh one of them was a fellow student in a college that I used to go to. And the other uh, seemed to be much more, I, I, I would say, much more well-read on things like, uh, you know, things like free trade, you know, the TPP, the Federal Reserve, you know, uh, all these different things, all these different topics. And uh, usually all the cases that I that I made on behalf of, uh, a more, much more liberated market. Uh, what, what I, the response I'd get is that, oh well, it, it, you know, it was the, the, the trickle down economics from the Reagan era that that caused the uh, that, that culminated to uh, our economic, you know, crash uh, somewhere in, in the two thousands or so. Uh, that that that's you know that's proof that capitalism is flawed it doesn't work and should be replaced with socialism 
there's also this excuse that there's income <laughs> income inequality and that uh, that women are paid less because they don't have maternity leave, or or that parents in general don't have uh, paternity leave. <laughs> okay, hang on, we got to just take these one at a time, and <laughs> because I mean, oh my god. And look, this this is true not just on the left, but since we happen to be picking on the left, let's just let me at least just make the case that they're usually not very good at debating. Yeah, they're they're just not because you have this thing where. Ah, the Laffer curve doesn't work. Trickle-down economics doesn't work. This particular policy, enacted 10 years before, led inexorably to this particular highly negative outcome. And therefore, anything associated with that policy, like lowering taxes or liberalizing trade or whatever, is automatically bad. That is really, really bad reasoning. It's not even reasoning. It's just ooga booga. It's usually <laughs> bad just, thing happened. I'm blaming capitalism. It's just a name that they give out. Like, yeah, yeah trickle-down economics, supply-side economics, Reaganomics... Voodoo economics. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. Don't define it. And so I'm just just left there, you know, kind of dumbfounded, you know, like, how do I respond to that? Because what are they what what are they trying to tell me? Like, what what point are they trying to make? You know, OK, trickle down economics. What about it? <laughs> you know, well, and, and if you ask them to explain what it is, they would probably say, well, it's the idea that uh, if we let the rich get rich, the money will somehow trickle down to the poor. Right. And it's not really what it is. But anyway, um, it's, it's just it's all terrible stuff because there's no clear causality, number one. Uh, number two, it goes against the things that they claim that they know, right? Is, is the problem with trickle-down economics or is the problem with the Federal Reserve? Which one is more influential? Actually, one of them told me— On the marketplace. Yeah, told, outright told me that the Federal Reserve is privately owned and therefore capitalism is bad. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. No, I, if I had a dime for every single time that I heard this comment, um, it's privately owned. It's like, okay, but it's a—I mean, things are privately owned in fascism. Who cares? It's still not the free market. Um, and the government grants it a monopoly. So how is that part of the free market? It's privately owned. It's like, but that's like saying, well, the government is not the government because people put the, their government paychecks in private bank accounts. Therefore, it's privately. I mean, it's just come on. I mean, if it's a government monopoly, it's a government monopoly. I don't care who owns it fundamentally. But um, yeah, and and the other thing, which which is where these people are in exceedingly thin ice, is because if negative consequences are reason to reject an entire system then what about the 94 million killed under communism in the 20th century alone? Uh, which, well, all these people died under communism. This doesn't even count all the people who half died in the gulags or struggled through the various state-engineered collectivist farming famines and all that. I mean, holy God. I mean, if you're going to say, which is worse, trickle-down economics leading to a crash, even if we say that's true, <laughs> still a hell of a lot better than communism leading to the deaths of 94 million goddamn people. Anyway, I have a friend, uh, a Norwegian friend living in China uh, with his wife, and he he actually told me he mentioned something about Mao uh, being responsible for those several millions of deaths under you know communism. And uh, most of the people who who hear hear that would laugh and go, no, you've been misled that you've been misinformed. Uh, Mao was actually a really great guy. You know, you know. This is all just Western propaganda. That's like the typical response he gets from like the average Chinese person over there, and he lives there, so he's kind of sort of dumbfounded by that. Well, why? 
I mean, why? I mean, did they have a particular view of the benevolence of disastrous leaders? But then you go to people in the West and you say, well, there's this leader and there's that leader. And they're like, oh, no, they were good. They're just, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's all West. It's all, you know, right wing or left wing propaganda that you have a negative view of this person. And they're really wonderful. And Anyway, so I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really appreciate the call. And thanks for giving me the chance to wander down memory lane <laughs> and recall the uh, intellectual battles of my youth that turned me into the hardened, sharpened, terminated mind warrior that I am today. So uh, thanks. A really, really enjoyable chat. Feel free to call back. Take care. All right. Up next, we have Evan. Evan wrote in and said, I listened to your other videos regarding climate change and agree that there is less total pollution today but I would like to add that there is a much higher carbon output. Do you believe that our carbon output hurts the environment? That's from Evan. Ryan wrote in and said, Why have athletics and the sports media in particular become a pulpit for the left and social justice warriors to advance their agenda? Is moral courage an accurate term to describe speaking the truth despite the social consequences? What are the possible long-term risks of having the word courage and its true meaning diluted by athletes and pundits in the sports media? That's from Ryan. Hey, Ryan, how you doing? Doing all right. Well, you know, it's funny, and I forgot to mention this in the, the video we did on Colin Kaepernick, uh, the, uh, the black athlete, uh, I guess the half-black athlete who didn't want to stand for the Yes, that uh, national makes this anthem. very topical. I wasn't intended yeah, that it's way, very topical. but it is now. I just wanted to mention, because there's an argument that floats around that says, well, he's rich, therefore he shouldn't do that. He can't claim that he wants to talk about oppression because he's rich. That, I think, is not a good... I'm not saying that's your argument, of course, but it's not a very good argument. Because if you do have money, then you can still talk about the oppression of other people. I mean, he's not saying, I'm oppressed. He's saying, blacks are oppressed, or, oh, you know, that. there's a group and so yeah i mean what do we say well you, you what is the cutoff you know is it, is it still like donation levels like for for political campaigns you can only go to 25 once you make more than 2500 bucks a month you can't talk about oppression it's like well that means that basically the only people who are allowed to talk about oppression are people who are never going to have much of a national or public voice so i i don't agree that he shouldn't talk about oppression just because he's very well paid um that i think is not uh, not fair and uh, not valid well what's obvious to me is if if the goal was to create change and to, you know, advance whatever agenda or stop the injustice that he believes is going on, that's obviously not the most effective way to go about that. It's, it's to get attention or uh, I'm not exactly sure. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't speculate as to his motives. He may be entirely sincere. He may not be. Um, but uh, I will say this, that, um, you know, he didn't have to do it and he's going to he's taking some heat, right? Oh, no, there, there are quite a few people that are speaking out against it, and the, the coverage of that has been, I mean, I'd say pretty fair, just because there, there are multiple sides to it, and I think people are you know, a little bit more likely to stand up for the country as a whole rather than one specific agenda, because um, I think people on the left could, find, you know, could be against him in this just because they're more in favor of just the country as a whole. It's not like they're by going against Kaepernick sitting down during the national anthem, they're not, they're not becoming, you know, pro Trump. They're just sustaining by the country and you know, the troops. And that's all mixed into it too. It's just, you know, this insane nationalism. Well, look, I mean, he, he wants to talk about the fact that 
certain segments of the black community are not doing well. Now, I mean, I, I haven't, I don't know what his particular belief system is as far as I haven't read if he's got a manifesto or whatever it is, but um, I think that um, this is something that America does need to keep talking about until there is some progress that is made. Now, if he had, if, if Colin Kaepernick had gotten up and said, um, uh, I, I think it's extraordinarily tragic that um, black men like my own father seem to have less than perfect commitment to their children on average, then that to me would be a pretty powerful thing to say. And uh, if he were to say, well, uh, back in the day, uh, in the 19, well, in the 18, late 1800s, in the 1920s, in the 1940s, in the 1950s, the black family was very stable. And I was fortunate to grow up in a stable family and look where it got me, 114 odd million dollar contract. So I would like to talk about how best to encourage and, and remind black women to choose better black men and for black men to be better fathers. I mean, that would be a powerful statement to make. And he would not obviously be the first black person. There's, there's a whole movement called the Sister I'm Sorry movement, which is black men apologizing to, I don't know if it's still around, but um, black men mm -hmm. apologizing to black women. And that would have been a very powerful thing. And um, to me, the as far as I understand it, he's, I think his general approach is that there's racism. You know, and and that explains everything. And, yeah, it's and, just it's a very unsophisticated way of yes of saying that exactly that that there is racism that we need to be aware of. Right, right, and that is, I don't find that particularly courageous. Oh, I would say I would say not. No, I mean it's it's courageous for him to you know he is going to risk some endorsements and he is going to risk some negative feedback and I don't follow football. But, you know, certainly some people were writing in to say, well, you know, he's a he's a fading star or whatever it is. Right. But yeah. look, he uh, he wants he wants to do good things for I don't know what I mean, say his community, because, again, he's half black, <laughs> was raised by white people is right. I don't I don't know what to say, but he wants he wants the black community to do better. And dear God, don't we all? Yeah. Don't we all? And. I mean, a lot of my effort and, and focus is trying to raise awareness of issues that are often obscured or brushed over that I think would be a benefit to various communities. And um, if he had taken a stand that was more surprising or startling to people, that to me would have taken more courage. Because what he did, he knew he would have the backing of the left-wing media. Oh, absolutely. And anybody who says, well, okay, let me make sure the media is on my side, and now I'm going, well, I just don't find that particularly courageous. I, I'm not saying it's not courageous, but it would be a lot more courageous to, I think, to have taken a stand with some important facts that a lot of black activists are trying to get across to the black community, but the mainstream media won't let them. <laughs> I think. Yeah, to take a stand that does involve explaining a little bit from both sides of of, of whatever of whatever arguments could be had for either for either side that there are racism that 
you know, that's being directed at black people from law enforcement, from just white people in general. I, I, that is going on, obviously, somewhere in the country and in the world. But also explain that a lot of that is down to problems that are in the, I get whatever the black community is, but there's problems that are from within that, not 100% from this, you know, systemic racism in the world. Mike, did you want to jump in? Because I think you've uh, fleshed out uh, fine young Mr. Kaepernick's uh, perspectives a little bit more. Yeah, if you look at his Twitter account, it's all police are automatically guilty type stuff. He was railing against the police in Baltimore that were acquitted and are now, I believe, going after the city for being prosecuted for practically no reason other than just trumped up. Cops are racist, so we have to prosecute them so people don't burn down the city charges. I'm not getting the, you know, I want the black community to do better vibe. I'm getting the I want, you know, white people and police to change because they're holding us down, which is a completely different thing on average. Mm. If he was talking about the rate of illegitimacy in the black community or things as a role model and as a public sports figure of some notoriety, he could have some sway in bringing attention to these issues. If he was talking about those, I'd I'd feel more uh, sympathetic to his cause. And, and you can be on the left and do that. I mean, you Bill Cosby can. with his famous sort of pound cake speech or putting pound cake speech, I think it was called, and people should look that up on YouTube. I mean, he, I think he was pretty regular donor to the Democrats, and uh, he was, um, uh, I think, pretty scathing towards certain elements of um, uh, black culture. And uh, so you can be on the left and still do that, but um, that's obviously not the approach that uh, he wanted to take, and I think that's, uh, I think that's a real shame. And there's also talk as well that uh, the fading star element that he may have been cut from the team this year. And uh, this, if he is cut from the team, he was cut from the team because he did this, so therefore he's the ultimate victim, setting up the next career. Oh, or maybe he can eke out another year by, we don't want to cut this guy, because now oh, so they, are going to say so, this. Like, he's, he's setting it's like, they, you can't cut me now, right? Because now it looked like retaliation for this, right? It's awfully interesting that as his career is going through the floor, now is when he decides to take a stand, as opposed to... You know, now, I'm sorry if I'm pushing your football knowledge it's not like we're talking about hockey but when it comes to his career going through the floor um i mean he's still a pretty young guy right don't i mean quarterbacks can last into their 30s and 40s assuming the gods of knee injuries don't strike them down from not above. if you're not playing well ah, my understanding okay. he was going to be the backup this year or he's set to be uh, the backup as it currently stands and he's getting paid a whole lot of money to be the backup which there's all types of problems with salary cap if you can cut people and how much still goes toward your cap and Again, football is not exactly my wheelhouse, and I think there's more going on than just he wants to uh, he wants to help the black community. Well, the other thing too, you know, and this is a, maybe a too charitable way of of looking at it. And guys, let me know what you think. But I can sort of see like he's used to being part of a team. I mean, to to get to that level of athletic excellence, uh, he's got to have been playing since he was in the single digits, you know, mid single digits as far as. Uh, 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 football and other team sports go. So he's always used to being part of a team. I just wonder the degree to which, if he's going to get cut, that he's like, okay, well, now I have a new team. Like, I need a new team. I, I can't be without a team. So now he's sort of making a play for his new team, uh, Social Justice Warriors or whatever the hell's going to come next. It's one possibility. Certainly makes sense to me. Yeah. As, as to what it means, well, you know, standing or sitting to a piece of music is not an argument. That's, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you, you can get attention for these things. And then the question is, what are you going to say when you have that attention? And uh, 
I, I, you know, I think we're past. I think we're past this sort of peak social justice warrior stuff. And um, I just think it seems a little retro to me uh, to to sort of climb off the uh, to climb on the sort of uh, everyone's a racist. Um, what a new novel thought so that no one's ever heard before. Yeah, oh, thank I mean, you it's for opening your mouth. Otherwise, we'd be completely lost in the wilderness. How, how do you spell that? R A and then what? Race? Is that an S in the middle? Racism? I've never heard that word before. It's like okay, yeah, thanks, thanks, Mr. Trotsky. Uh, we find that this is just working hunky dory, and you know that, of course, is the big, in a sense, gift of of clarity, which you know got at least a half black uh, president and a black attorney general, and you know if you look at all the sort of black controlled Democrat cities and so on. You know, it's just it's one of these things that is only compelling until you start looking at pictures and reading numbers uh, around America. And um, so I think it is. uh, I have no problem with people obviously getting up and speaking. If he doesn't want to stand for the national anthem, don't stand for the national anthem. Yeah, I mean, he can say whatever he wants, but, uh, you know, he should be evaluated not relative to his fame. But he should be evalu- evaluated uh, relative to the quality of uh, his arguments. And uh, w- wasn't he the guy who wore police pig socks? Oh yes, that's that's the latest thing that has happened as well. Not not an argument. Socks are not an like the things I have to say on this show, Mike. Help me, help me out here. Socks are not an argument. <laughs> uh, and so I just I don't know. It's um. Raise awareness all you want. Uh, And, um, you know, I mean, it's really, really important that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio fly airplanes across the country uh, to make sure he gets to his yacht on time so he can tell us all about how bad it is that we overconsume things, you know. So raise uh, (laughs) raise, – the only thing he's conserving is Gillette razors apparently these days. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if he wants to not stand, if he wants to raise awareness to an issue, that's fine. And – if he's got anything intelligent to say, I mean, I'd be the first to listen and applaud him. And um, but it just—it seems like uh, he's just been handed a bunch of talking points, and um, the complexity of these topics is enormous. And I don't know. Am I going to take advice from somebody who's potentially been exposed to a lot of head injuries? I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Well, there's an element to this, too, that no one is talking about that I find particularly curious. There is a loyalty element to your team and the organization. At least there would be for me. And Mm. this is putting not only the organization but all of his teammates in very, very strange positions. And it's going to completely divide the team. I can imagine the locker room is completely divided over what he's done. There's people sympathetic and people that are... Yeah, I've seen some interviews with his teammates where they're like... "Uh, I guess it's he has the right to do so. I'm not sure what to think. Like it's pretty awkward. Oh yeah, you know, that. don't get mad at me. I <laughs> I'd like to play football. Can you not get mad at me? I don't want to make a political right. statement. So the team's completely divided. And just from a sheer loyalty standpoint, especially given the amount of money he's being paid, I, I understand if you have political statements, and you know, there's a time and a place for that. I do think, but this is kind of a dick move when it comes to the team and his occupation as a whole. It's a it's a challenge, of course, because if he is cut from the team, nobody cares whether he sits or stands for the national anthem. This is true. So if he's going to get the kind of publicity that he wants for his, let's just loosely call them arguments or socks or whatever they are, um, then he kind of has to do it in a way that is going to dick up the team, right? 
Because if he waits until he's not part of the team, he's not going to have that platform anymore. That's true. That's certainly true. But, you know, there's plenty of past sports stars of notoriety, and I think he would classify in that group that even after their playing career is over, they certainly get attention if they were to make political statements. I mean, Shaq yeah, gets I mean, pulled I, up every uh, five seconds, and he's not a star of the level of Shaq. But, you know, we're always, what's Charles Barkley got to say about this? Okay, let's let's find out. You know, this, if you reach a certain level of notoriety, especially in your local community, uh, you can certainly make an impact long after your playing days are behind you. Yeah, I mean, listen, I have the world's biggest philosophy show uh, after my 10-year career as a junior violinist in the church orchestra. So I, I pretty much know exactly where you're coming from and where he's coming from. And uh, obviously, pretty much the same level. You're, you're very so, pretty yeah. stuff. You're, you're st- very good point. <laughs> very good point. Yes, you're so pretty. I do some sit-ups, not so much with the violin. Um, okay, so does that does that help? Or well, uh, I, I, I'd be a little more interested on the broader scope of just of as the sports media as opposed to you know news media or you know political or something like that or certainly social media if you can call that media. But just the way that uh, the way Wait, that hang on, were you just you just totally dissing social media here? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I might be the only one. I guess I might be the only one. Yeah, you uh, compared to what? <laughs> compared to the mainstream media? Anyway, exactly. uh, sorry, go on. Yeah, it's the lesser of two evils or three evils, however many there are. Um, well, it's, and I understand where they're coming from. It's you know, ESPN is owned by is owned by Disney, and they have a an interest in you know keeping things, uh, I guess, not controversial. You could say. I mean, you don't want to have a political argument breaking out in the middle of a, you know, a, the, the pregame show for, for whatever oh, game is going on. Hang on, hang on. If you think Disney is not radical, I think you need to think again. <laughs> I think Disney is an extremely radical organization, uh, just in terms of the social messages they put into their movies. But anyway, I get, oh, I get sort of where you're coming from. People don't want their sports stuff necessarily interrupted oh, with uh, political monologues. That's the thing. Disney is, Disney is absolutely, I mean, like you said, radical in the, in the views that they're, or the, you know, the, the angles that they're pushing, but it's almost as if the as if sports media gets to choose what they believe is going to be controversial and what is not. I don't follow that. Well, um, if you dig into into the arguments that they're making that 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 Disney would be pushing that that Kaepernick is pushing or you know whatever the the left the left side argument would be, I guess if you could say, if you dig into that, I feel like that's a whole lot more controversial than than the opposition could be. But they they choose to to censor arguments that they believe don't you know interest their their financial uh, agenda in, in in the end I believe. Sure, sure. Yeah, and look, it is it is sad that there is this conflation in people's minds with money and competence with. Um, uh, he's he's famous, and therefore what he has to say must be important. Uh, and I, I mean, the the people who, the public figures who people look up as sort of uh, intellectual or moral heroes these days, um, I I would not say is quite cut from the same cloth as they were in the past. And it could just be me sort of painting the past in in golden, shot through a honey brand muffin hues. But uh, I just think that uh, this guy ain't no Thomas More, and. Uh, he ain't no Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> and uh, I just think that uh, where people get their inspiration from these days uh, is um, from larger-than-life figures in one area, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't translate into uh, into other areas. And um, 
maybe, you know, maybe he'll write a book. Maybe he'll go on a speaking tour. Maybe he'll do some really cool stuff. And maybe this is just the beginning. But, um, well, if he can come up with, yeah, if he can come up with some good arguments that actually, you know, that, that, that actually have some substance to them, then that would be, that would be great. If he, if he could, if he could help, if he could help the black community in an actual way, rather than, you know, some type of posturing, that would be preferable. Yes. And I, I think he would be in a unique position to say to the black community, given how much he was helped by whites, to say, look, white people are not your enemy. I mean, it was my, my black father who abandoned me, my white birth, birth mother who decided to give me up for adoption because she was, uh, I think, 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. And, you know, white, a white family who raised me, and they seemed like wonderful parents uh, in, in many ways. And so maybe there's something he could say about, look, I mean, I can't say that white people are my enemy because white people have done me enormously great services and raised me well and and uh, so on and maybe he could do something to uh, heal uh, divides to to lower levels of animosity maybe he could say look um, white families um, stay together more than black families and Asian families stay together even more than white families so let's go down to Chinatown and figure out how they're doing it <laughs> you know whatever is going to happen mm-hmm. and the idea that we can learn from one another, different ethnicities, different groups, different races that we can learn from one another is, uh, you know, if, you know, we're, we're all in this thing together. If we, we can find some positive things to get from, uh, each community and, and that's not to sort of aggregate every community, but you know what I mean? And like, why, why couldn't he be someone who says, look, I'm half black, I'm half white. Um, I, you know, I get the black culture. I assume he's got some familiarity, familiarity with it because he's talking a lot about the black cultural issues or certain issues. And he also really gets the white culture because he grew up in Wisconsin, raised by a white family. And so couldn't, couldn't he be like a, a bridge across the waters kind of guy, helping to close the gap, helping to close the divide? And um, that's not what he seems to be choosing at this time, and I think that's a real shame. I, I absolutely agreed. Let me just read something um, real quick. Um, a woman beaten to death with a lamp in an act of domestic violence. A man fatally stabbed during an argument outside a tavern. A man shot and killed while returning from a funeral for his grandfather. Those are just three of the 24 homicides recorded in August, what Milwaukee police have termed the deadliest month in 25 years. This kind of stuff is happening in lots of predominantly black major cities across the United States. Lots of people are dying. There are bodies piling up. And the people that are continuing to fan the flames of this anti-police rhetoric, they have black blood on their hands. So when he wants to wear socks that say police are pigs, and he wants to continue to inflame hostilities against the police between the black community and, you know, the people that are often getting called to prevent these types of issues, he's got blood on his hands. I can't look at it as anything but that. If you want to fan the flames of anti-police sentiment in the black community, you have blood on your hands. And those numbers and those bodies continue to pile up. Well, and there does seem to be a correlation, to, to further Mike's point, there's a correlation between the rise of the Ferguson effect, and which is named uh, after, of course, the riots in Ferguson and the, the 
eruption of additional tensions uh, between police and the black community, certain elements within the black community. Yeah, there's, uh, there are statistically probably quite countable additional bodies uh, as a result of uh, all of this uh, rhetoric. And uh, it, is, uh, it does have deadly consequences. Uh, and um, I think you'd have to be pretty ideologically, you'd have to have your ideological blinders on pretty damn hard to miss it. Well, I, I, one of the, the things that I think is more dangerous about, you know, start getting politics or something like that involved in sports just in the first place is, you know, like you said, you're blind, you have to have your blinders on to not notice it. But people's defenses are are down, certainly, just because, you know, you turn on you turn on ESPN or whatever it may be. You're just you're vegging out. You're not you're not hoping to get into some in-depth political discussion. But it, it, a lot of times it, it got, does turn that way at least subliminally. Right. Right. Well, we'll have to see. You know, I mean, I think that America is at a, a real crossroads um, coming up in uh, November. And we'll see. There are a wide variety of perspectives and opinions in the black community. And right now, there's a bit of picky-choosy stuff going on in the media, to, to put it mildly. And uh, the full spectrum is not being broadcast and uh it's my hope of course that uh a wider and richer discussion of uh issues within the black community and other communities may be possible at some point um you know the the, the fact that donald trump is talking about the negative effects that uncontrolled immigration is having on black employment and hispanic employment you would never i think really have seen that perspective coming out of the mainstream media. And these kinds of approaches and these kinds of arguments um, need to be added to the mix so that we can all continue to bend our brains to solve some of these uh, problems and uh, bring more peace and stability to various communities. So um, hopefully the discussion tent is going to get a little wider, a little more open, and things will improve uh, from there. Because uh, I think it's pretty clear to say that the left repeatedly banging on the drum of racism is not solving the problem, <laughs> at least. All right. Well, thanks very much for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, let's move on to the next caller. All right. Up next, we have Evan. Evan wrote in and said, I listened to your other videos regarding climate change and agree that there is less total pollution today, but I would like to add that there is a much higher carbon output. Do you believe that our carbon output hurts the environment? That's from Evan. Hello, Evan. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Steph. I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you very much. That's very, very kind of you. Um, do I believe that CO2 harms the environment? Do you believe that, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, with changes in technology and carbon output and everything that we're basically doing, do you think that it has a negative side effect? Uh, because so many people say, you know, CO2 is causing global warming, uh, climate change, whatever you want to call it. Well, CO2 has certainly risen since industrialization. And I, I think it's sort of basically um, the, the big push has sort of been mid-last mid century. That's sort of my understanding. Um, temperatures were rising before that. There's actually um, some data which you can find out, which is that uh, sort of the first couple of decades of the 20th century mirror in many ways some of the warming that has occurred in the last couple of decades of the 20th century. Yeah. So, uh, without a doubt, human beings are contributing 
uh, CO2 to the atmosphere, and that contribution is pretty significant. I mean, China puts out as much CO2 in 18 days as Australia puts out in the whole year. Okay, so you're, and, not, you're not denying that we put out CO2. Well, no, that would be to deny physics. That's how I know that you're rational. There's yeah, look, the internal combustion with, engine... Like, yeah. We don't do anything, and there, we don't produce any CO2, is what some people say. Well, you know, given that I breathe out, it would be very tough for me to say I don't produce any <laughs> yeah, CO2, yeah. <laughs> and I eat Indian. But anyway, um, so no, there's no, no question that human beings are in the process of uh, converting... Um, well, I guess re-releasing CO2 back into the atmosphere that formerly was trapped in fossil fuels and unavailable to plants as food. So, yeah, no, no question that uh, human beings are uh, liberating CO2 from its historical prison uh, and uh, releasing it into the atmosphere. Uh, and there's no question that that has an effect on the environment. Uh, I, I don't see how that could possibly be disputed. I think that the numbers are pretty clear. That's good to hear because uh, now let me ask you a bigger question of so overall you agree that there is climate change then man-made climate change would you put yourself in that camp well again i i the, the terms are very are very challenging yeah they're very uh, loaded yeah the, the terms are very challenging but but uh, of course when you when you increase co2 in the atmosphere uh, it is going to have an effect on the environment now whether that is climate change as a whole whether it's catastrophic climate change and so on well i I'm I'm open to arguments, but I don't have uh, a firm position on that as yet. Okay. But um, I I remain a skeptic uh, for a variety of reasons, which we can get into. Uh, but um, yeah, of of course, yeah, we <laughs> CO2 is going out, uh, and um, I mean we know for for instance that uh, crop yields are up enormously or significantly around the world. That's that's and, good to uh, hear that you're on the rational playing field because yeah. uh, you know forest, that's that forest cover. Yeah, forest cover is up. Basically, as you know, uh, we breathe in oxygen, breathe, breathe out CO2, and plants breathe in CO2 and breathe out oxygen. So we are in a reciprocal exchange relationship, oxygen and CO2, with uh, our friendly uh, <laughs> sunlight-based cousins in the ground. And so we, we know that, at least I think it's fairly clear, that human beings are, through, through our production of CO2 into the atmosphere, are uh, helping to trigger a significant increases in plant growth around the world and uh that has some positive aspects in terms of hey food yeah. <laughs> nice excellent it has no. some negative aspects i assume in terms of like algae growth and and certain things that are going to change some of the um ecologies of uh, of uh, water-based uh, environments yeah. and so on um, but um you know whether this is um some sort of massive change in the climate of the planet as a whole i think that's uh, tricky uh because I if we were simply pumping CO2 into a closed system. Like, for instance, if you had a greenhouse that was perfectly well, oh, let's just, like, let's not get crazy with the details, but if you had a greenhouse that was sealed and had no plants in it and you kept pumping CO2 into that greenhouse, it would very quickly become uninhabitable for human beings. Yeah. Right? I mean, so, because, you know, we need a little bit of the O2 along with the CO2. And, uh, but, but if you put a whole bunch of plants in there, which is kind of the way the greenhouses work, right? I mean, the, the um, horticulturalists, uh, they will pump CO2 into the greenhouse to help the plants grow. So we are in a reciprocal relationship, so we put CO2 into the air and the plants take it out. So I don't know. I mean, does it have an effect? Of course. What is the long-term effect? Uh, is, it, is it scalable and so on? Well, 
I do know this, that uh, a lot of the estimates of what was going to happen have not panned out. Okay. And that simply indicates that something is not, um, some factor is not being taken into account. If the estimates of where the temperature was going to be by now uh, are significantly diverging from what the temperature that's being recorded is now, then obviously well, we can, when you have, uh, We again, can talk about right? all that. And uh, I'd like to say a few things first before yeah, we get into the details. Uh, I'm a free market guy all the way. You know, I'm huge. I actually work in finance. Um, I'm a huge econ guy. Uh, I consider myself a libertarian. But something that always struck me when I was studying the free markets is efficiency can come with a price. I don't need to explain to you, you know, what a negative externality is, you know. But what I'm worried about, and I started out as a climate change denier, you know, I'm like, oh, these, these hippies just want to, you know, make the economy grow slower or something like that. But, you know, I watch a lot of your videos and I agree with you on the philosophy that you gotta, you gotta look at the facts and take emotion out of it. And I started looking at the facts and I eventually became a climate change believer and I keep looking at the facts and I'm very worried about what's happening in Russia right now, how the Russian tundra, the permafrost, is starting to melt. And <clears throat> I won't give you too much information, but the last time CO2, I'm sorry, the last time the Russian permafrost melted, it was because of a volcano. It triggered a massive extinction that killed 95% of the species on Earth. And people were linking the updated CO2, the output that we're producing as humans, which is massive compared to what it was before the Industrial Revolution. People were comparing that CO2 to the Russian permafrost melting, among other things. And if that melts, it could trigger a, train, uh, a chain reaction that would acidify our oceans. And so I'm very worried that, I mean, climate change, man-made or not, we need to recognize that stuff is going down and um, permafrost is melting. Right. And I, I don't have any particular uh, information on that. But is it fair to say that other than the mass extinction of 95% of all life forms on the planet, you're not worried? Well, I mean, that was millions and millions of years ago. And so <clears throat> what I'm worried about, I mean, there's many things that climate change could do. Shortage of water, just to name one. But what I'm very worried about is I look at trends and I look at history. And the last time a massive extinction happened, it was because the ocean was um, acidified. That's not the correct word, but you know what I mean. And... What I'm worried is it might happen again if this permafrost melts and people are tying it to climate change. And now with all these reports that 2016 or 2015 was the hottest year ever and the trend keeps going up. And if you well, no, the, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but technically it was not the hottest year ever. That's only if you count the land-based temperature measuring stations uh, by, by satellite. It was but not can the hottest year. We agree year it was a very hot year. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and what I'm worried about is the CO2 output compared to the 
yeah, what I said, you know, how the ocean is acid, um, becoming more and more acidic. And if a ocean life dies, like what happened, I think it was, it was called the Great Dying. It happened, I think, 200 million years ago. If that permafrost melts again, which it's already starting to melt, it could prove d- disastrous. And there was just a report out two weeks ago that some reindeer in the perma uh, in Canada, actually, um, I think it was Canada, that some reindeer were uncovered and they had anthrax and it spread and it killed more reindeer. And I think someone went to the hospital. What the rain? Sorry, I don't understand the reindeer thing. Reindeer had anthrax. Yeah, it was a reindeer that died. I think in at least 60 years ago or 70 years ago, but they were buried because this is in Northern Canada where I'm assuming, you know, there's a lot of permafrost, a lot of cold, a lot of snow. And as it warms, the carcasses were exposed and I guess it infected other reindeer that are still living and it killed the live reindeer. And so there's a worry that some of these infectious diseases like anthrax, I mean, I think even smallpox was quoted that smallpox could possibly come back, but it has not. Oh, occurred. like reemerge from frozen carcasses from the past? Exactly, but anthrax is the only one that has emerged so far, so that's going to be what I talk about. Right, right. So I'm, I'm very worried about this whole ordeal, and we have a lot of people in America at least who I consider myself conservative, but I don't join the conservative tribe. And there's a lot of people who say they're conservative, but they go more off the tribalistic mentality than anything. And since, you know, the Republicans say climate change is a hoax, they say, oh, it must be a hoax. They don't even do research. Right, right. Well, listen, I mean, if if people are talking about smallpox being released from frozen corpses of reindeer or anthrax and people are talking about 95 percent bio deaths on on the planet i can certainly see that there's room for rational concern in those uh yeah and i just want to get to the bottom of it and we have a political party in the u.s that doesn't even acknowledge it and when you try to talk to them about or someone about the co2 release there tends to be some kind of i don't know what you would call it Cognitive bias. Why, why would you hang on? Why, why would you assume that the people who um, believe see when someone when people say climate change is a hoax? Yeah, there's lots of layers to that. Now, some people, I assume, this is why your initial question to me was around CO2. Some people are saying that there's no additional CO2 in the air. Yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty pretty easy to disprove. Just yeah. measure it, right? Um, some people are saying that there is CO2 in the air, but it's not going to have catastrophic effects on the climate. Yeah. And um, other people are saying that um, there is CO2 in the air, but that the models that are put forward by the scientists are have, have not proven accurate enough to base massive policy decisions upon. Okay. Uh, some people are saying that there is CO2 in the air produced by men, which has yeah. negative effects or even catastrophic effects on the climate. And but I don't believe that the solution is more government control, more government policies, more government programs, more government treaties, more like that. That's that's the last thing that you want to get involved in, because, you know, I mean, 
How this stuff is old. This stuff. Hang on. 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 Sorry. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> this stuff was old when I was young. Right. I mean, uh, the, the the fear that human beings have broken some covenant with the planet because we have comfort uh, is is an old idea. Uh, and this doesn't mean it's false. I'm just saying that when I was a kid, as you know, there was this big panic about global cooling. Yeah. And uh, um, this was the big anxiety. And uh, I'm sure Lloyd DeMoss would psychologically pin it down to growth anxiety or something like that. But anyway, there is this idea that uh, pride goes before a fall, that Icarus flies too close to the sun, that we've gotten too comfortable, that things are too good, and bad things are just about to happen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that is... Um, uh, I, I mean, basically, I think it's an old psychological mechanism where if you're doing really well in the past, you would invite attack. It's oh, look at this big, concern. peaceful, rich country uh, or this big, peaceful, rich tribe. We're going to attack them because they've got stuff that we want. And anyway, so it, it doesn't disprove anything. I'm just saying that there is this uh, repetitive doom, yeah, doom is nice stuff, valid. which is, which is out yeah. there. Yeah. So as far like I'm willing to accept the possibility of everything you're saying. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I, you know, you can, you can read this stuff till you're blue in the face. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't have the source data. I'm not going to sit there and evaluate everybody's um, approach to, to the data and how that all uh, works. Um, I just think it's something that, you know, needs to be brought up more. And I see you as kind of a pioneer of, you know... Well, no, no, hang on, because let me, let me just finish my point. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I paused. I paused, so it's perfectly fine for you to say. But, but here's no, the No, go ahead. Right, this, yeah, this is what it all comes down to for me. There are a few things that we could do that would be the greatest things that we could do to solve climate change. If we assume catastrophic anthropogenic climate change that needs to be dealt with immediately or we're all underwater or the oceans die off and we die off with them and whatever it is, right? I mean, if we accept all of the disaster scenarios that are occurring, then there are a few things that we could do that would have the most effect on the problem. And I'll just lay a few of them out for you and then you can tell me what you think. So, number one, no national debt, no national deficits, no unfunded liabilities immediately, immediately. America is at the moment about $20 trillion in debt. And what that means, of course, is that America has consumed $20 trillion worth of goods and services in the present and not the future. Now, excessive consumption in the present is not great for the environment, right? So that would be number one, that... All environmentalists should be focusing like crazy on reducing government debts and deficits. But they don't. So clearly they don't give much of a shit about $20 trillion of excessive consumption, of excess consumption just in America over the past couple of decades. They should be going insane on Obama saying, wait a minute, you inherited a debt of $10 trillion. Now the debt is $20 trillion in only eight years. Yeah. You've got to be kidding. Do you know the amount of environmental damage that extra $10 trillion is spending in eight years has cost the planet? Yeah. Right. So that 
would be enormous. Number one. Number two, they should be focusing on minimizing divorce. Okay. Yeah, right? I've, because I've, I've heard all your. Uh, yeah, no, but it's okay. It's not just for you. It's not just you and me, right? And there are other people listening too. So you want to work on minimizing divorce because when there's a divorce, then you go from living in one household to living in two households. And there's a lot of driving back and forth between these two households. And everybody needs double furniture and double toys and double clothes and everything. And so divorce, you know, environmentalists who care about the planet should be working very hard to um, get marriage counseling, and strongly oppose divorce. Mm -hmm. There was the argument that Donald Trump used in his immigration speech that for the price of settling one person from the Middle East in America, you could settle 12 in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And environmentalists should be focusing very hard on making sure that refugees from the Middle East are settled in the Middle East where their overall resource consumption will be far lower and they won't need to be flown to America, which has a huge carbon imprint. And the culture is similar. Well, I get all of that, but I mean, we're just talking about the environmental side of Mm -hmm. things. Um, Also, um, environmentalists should be promoting homeschooling. I mean, think of the amount of resources that are poured into government schools. And think of the amount of busing of students that occurs. Think of the amount of carbon that occurs with regards to government schools. Should be homeschooling or at least have neighborhood schools or at least have voucher systems so that people can choose the best schools that are the closest to them. Yeah, I agree. Transfer something online or, you know, you can access it through a computer now. Right. Um they should be enormously positive towards Uber and they should be enormously negative towards taxi license plate expenses, right? You can spend hundred, hundred $150,000 to get a license plate, which raises the price of taxis to the point where people say to hell with it, I'm buying a car. Yeah. They should also be very, very much opposed to central banking. Central banking, <clears throat> central banks are the greatest disaster for the economy and therefore the environment that can possibly be imagined. I totally agree. And there's an argument. And they don't talk yeah. about central banking at all. Yeah. I don't know why. Is it because you it's don't get It's related to, to the national debt. There's a, it is. Yeah. But it's, it's not just related to the national debt. The manipulation of interest rates. You know, I know it's not a sexy subject. You can't show a skinny polar bear on a tiny iceberg. But this is where if you really want to solve problems, you use your goddamn brains. Not you. I mean, the environmentalists. If you really want to solve a problem, you would understand that... Central banking manipulation of interest rates causes massive and catastrophic misallocations of Earth's precious and scarce resources into economically unproductive ends. Yep. Which is another way of saying that you might as well truss up all the polar bears on the planet and set fire to them in front of the Fed. (laughs) Because that's what's happening. That is what's happening with central banking. I mean, if you look at the degree to which central banking and other government policies were responsible for a massive overbuilding of American housing throughout the 2000s and then 2007, 2008, you saw a giant housing crash, left 10% of the U.S. housing market uninhabited. Uninhabited. Look at um, Detroit. Look at Philadelphia. Look at these cities where a significant, like block up a block of housing, empty. 
empty. How much effort was put into creating those houses, and now they've been abandoned, and people have moved to other houses or other apartments, which had to be built as well. Mm-hmm. This is all the result of various socialist policies, various leftist policies. And you say, and I take a bit of umbrage at this, but you say, oh, we well, see the Republicans, blah, blah, blah. They deny this, they deny that. Well, first of all, you might want to read some of the more potent literature of skepticism. And secondly, oh, I, I, let's I say... I started out as a skeptic. I know, but you may want to, you may want to stay current. Oh, I'm, I, that, I, that's I, all am. I'm I am. I am. But let me, let me just, let me just mention this, can. and then... Let me just mention this, and I'll, I'll give you the, the platform. But let's say that the Republicans are anti-science voodoo monsters, right? <laughs> right? They not, just they don't not. get it. They, yeah, they, they don't get it. They don't understand. It's and not let's bad. say, you know, but let's say, let's say that that's true, right? Let's say that the— I don't, I don't think the, it's anything. No, I understand. It's a thought experiment, man. Just go with me here. Okay. So it is—let's say that the left has, has it— down cold on the science. Catastrophic, anthropogenic, global warming, disaster. We're all underwater. The oceans turn to fire, and uh, it's all a biosphere-ending mess. So let's say that the, the, the leftists are all completely down on the science, and the Republicans are fundamentalist, anti-science lunatics. Well, I don't care. What do I care about? I care about what policies these people might want to put into place. Okay. Now, theoretically, who do you think is going to be better on reducing government spending? Republicans or Democrats? That's a great question. I, I, I can't say either. No, theoretically. Theoretically, I would say conservatives, but some Republicans okay. are not conservative. I get that. I get that. So, And we're just talking about the platforms, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, it would be Republicans. So Republicans will be better for the environment than Democrats because Republicans will cut government spending, mm-hmm. which means fewer consumption of Earth-scarce resources in the present. That's assuming they will cut total. I know. That's just why I put all the caveats in. Dude, yeah. just go with me here. Yeah, That's yeah. why I said it. All theoretical, just based on the platforms. I understand all of that. Um, when Donald Trump talks about resettling refugees in the Middle East rather than in America, is that going to be better or worse for the environment if they're resettled in the Middle East? It would be better. I believe it would be better for the environment. Yeah. If uh, they talk about um, passing a no-deficit resolution or if they talk about cutting all of these um, government programs and, and so on and... Cutting welfare, right? Because human migration is hard on the environment, right? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be human migration. I'm just saying that it, it, is, uh, it is a problem. And to you know, look at it from a coldly calculating resource consumption standpoint, do people in Mexico, if they stay in Mexico, do people in Mexico consume more or fewer resources than if they move to the States? Less. They consume yeah. less. Right. And so if people are moving from Mexico to America, legally, or illegally. Let's just say illegally is really the only important part that matters as far as that speech went. But um, if people are moving from Mexico to America, then they are moving from a low resource to a high resource consumption state. Mm-hmm. Now, please understand, I have all the sympathy for the poverty in Mexico. I'm simply talking about, you know, there are environmentalists out there willing to contemplate radical human depopulation. So, um, you know, not having a second iPhone shouldn't be the end of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And 
I really enjoyed the thought experiment. Um, what I would like to add, though, is at the beginning, it's not that the Republicans are stupid or dumb or voodoo science, whatever. It's that there's been traces, and again, I encourage all the listeners to look it up and Google it themselves. You know, don't take my word for it. But then there's been traces that back in, I think it was the 80s, ExxonMobil knew about climate change and they started to spend million, millions of dollars on PR firms hiring the same people that confused us about smoking, the same people that said smoking doesn't cause cancer. They hired them to start confusing us about climate change. And then the oil companies and ExxonMobil, and I'm not trying to demonize anyone, you know, they're corporations, they're not people, but then they would go and they would fund politicians. And it's very documented. You can go to Open Secrets and you can see that ExxonMobil donates to politicians. And so my concern is these Republicans who say climate change doesn't exist, when I go to Open Secrets and type in their name, I see that they get millions of dollars from oil companies. Yeah, but I mean, you're getting buried in the propaganda wars. I'm talking about the practical realities of how this problem is going to be solved. If we accept that you're anxious about this problem, and I, I fully accept that you are, and I sympathize with that anxiety, I, I don't want 95% of life on the planet to die off either. Then the question yeah, is, that's, that's what is the solution? The question of the solution from the, last time, you know, the solution, yeah, the solution has to be that we consume less. And the best way to get yeah. us to consume less is for governments to stop running deficits and for money to be returned to the hands of the people, sound money principles, gold standard, you name it, that is the way yeah. that we stop the excessive consumption of resources. I agree with you on that, but now let's take a step back and get super practical. The ideas you and I have are not common, unfortunately, and we, we have to do everything that we can to reach people. But what can be done now? Oh, my, my question is, as we try to achieve all of those, should we consider targeting, for example, maybe a carbon tax or something, oh God, to, no. something oh God, to target no. a, climate change? No. Maybe not a carbon no. tax, but something maybe allocating subsidies away from oil companies because subsidies are not free market anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 one of the main reasons why there are big problems with CO2 uh, is because governments built all these giant roads everywhere and didn't pay for them, by the way, and in many ways they're not even paid for now. Yeah. So, you, so the government has you know, pursued policies that promote divorce. Yeah. The government has pursued policies that destroy massive amounts of environmental resources through, like, jiggering up businesses so that they build and then collapse and jiggering up the housing market. So millions of houses are built that then are uninhabitable. Okay. And the government borrows and, and stimulates demand in the here and now and uh, destroys resources that way by excessive consumption in the here and now. All those resources will not be available in the future for people who want to build stuff or, or live in places. So, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, but... Now you're saying, well, the government has done all of these things, which has massively contributed to the problem. Yeah. But let's just let's give them one more power to have a carbon tax, and maybe that will help. I mean, the idea that government can never do anything good, I disagree with that, too. I mean, I, I think overwhelmingly, like when you talk about states, yeah, states in general, you could argue, do cause more harm than good. But 
when it comes to something as catastrophic as climate change, I want some action now while we try to do what you right. have been saying. Right. Then, then you should work to, to get people into power who are going to cut government spending as much as possible. Yeah, but that will not do enough when other, there's other states besides the United States. You know, oh, so you want all governments around the world, you feel it's feasible to convince all governments around the world to impose a carbon tax to your liking? No, but I feel like... Okay, so then let's, let's, so then start with something that's more actionable and closer to home. Because you see, understand, this is what governments do. And this is what propaganda does. Is it fills you full of so much fear that you just run to the nearest master and hand over more of your rights. Yeah. Listen, you Again, might I'm want... Not, I'm not this, you might want, you, you, listen, you might want some oil, big carbon tax. You, you might want some big carbon tax that's going to save the world. But if you advocate for some carbon tax, yeah. you know what's going to happen. Well, what? The government's going to say, oh, okay, great. So everybody's for this big carbon tax. Well, I like that. It's the government, right? Yeah. So what's the government going to do? Well, the government is going to start floating around the idea of a carbon tax. And what, what, what do you think all of the businesses that have these kinds of emissions, what are they going to do? They're going to start lobbying and they're going to start buying off the politicians and they're going to start creating policy think groups and they're going to start influencing scientists and they're going to start, they're going to have control over the legislation, not you. It already happens today. That's where we are of course. today. And I'll tell you something else. Let's say the government raises, let's just take some number, they raise um, $500 billion from the carbon tax, right? Okay. What do you think they're going to do with that money? It's, it's you're trying to disincentivize CO2. No, no, I, I know what the tax is for. What is the government going to do when it collects that tax? That's a great question. I would like to say they'd spend it well, but if you look at history... No, you don't understand. You don't understand. The, let's say they spend it well. It would still add let's to consumption, they, which would then put it out adds more to consumption. CO2. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. It, let's, say, let's say that they, they spend all of that half a billion dollars, or half a trillion dollars, let's say they spend all of that money completely renovating all of the schools and all of the infrastructure and all of the roads and all of the bridges, right? Well, all of that is going to massively consume resources. Yeah. And it's going to make roads better, and it's going to make schools friendlier, and it's going to make uh, bridges safer, and so people are going to want to drive more. I'd like to put that 500 mil to the national debt. Well, that's not going to happen. I know. I, I, you can watch the other thing, frame. But that's, that's the best scenario. The best scenario, my friend, is that they spend the money in the here and now. Do you know what the most likely scenario is? What? The most likely scenario is they say, whoa, we just got $500 billion. <laughs> we can use that as collateral to borrow yeah. $5 trillion. Yeah. Yep. So now we've got $5 trillion of additional spending we can do. Yep. Ooh, that's great. And so collecting the money from the companies is going to concentrate it. It's going to allow them to spend more money, which is going to be even worse than if they never collected the tax in the first place as far as carbon emissions go. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an argument. Do you know, this is kind of, this is on topic. Do you know what the key, the center of finance is? For one, the most important security. It's I'm sorry, US, I didn't quite understand the question. Say again. It's a, the most important security in all of finance is a U.S. bond. Mm. And so there's an idea that the central bank <clears throat> buys the U.S. bonds to help stabilize the economy and crop up stock prices. That's what quantitative easing is. Mm-hmm. 
And so there's a lot of people who say that, you know, the stock market is booming right now. It's at all time highs. A lot of people were saying that's because of QE and that's because the Fed is buying all the bonds from the U.S. government. And so there's some people who believe that banks, and again, there's, this is somewhat conspiratorial, so people should do their own research, that banks encourage government debt so that they can buy the bonds that the government issues. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, it's a big game of past the parcel up there at the top. I, I have no doubt about that. But look, I mean... But you agree that, heard... you know, CO2 exists. You, you agree that, you know, there's facts and you can look at, you know, and you do... So right now, what's your, like, view if you had to take a step back? Do you believe that mad-made climate change, if, I, if we can use that term... Do you believe that it's a threat right now? Do you believe it could be a threat? Or do you just need to do more research? Statist- no, statistically, it is not a threat. Statistically, like num- number-wise, it's a huge boon. Right now or in the future? I don't know about the future. I mean, the future an asteroid could hit the planet. I'm just talking about what's happening right now. So right now, as you know, in the last 80 years, right, CO2 emissions have gone up considerably. Yeah, but it's climate, hang on, hang on. You gotta let me finish my sentences, right? Go ahead. In the last eighty years, CO two emissions have gone up considerably, but climate related deaths have declined by ninety eight percent. Okay. There's more food in the world now because of CO two emissions. So, uh, and I won't get into all of this. You can read the moral case for fossil fuels by Alex Epstein, who's been on the show. Okay, and you can also, we've had uh, one of the founders of Greenpeace on the show who's talking about the fact that we're releasing CO2 back in the atmosphere is great because plants were starving to death. Mm. Yeah, and again... And so I, I don't know as far as, you know, what the future holds. I do, you know, I think where you and I can very much agree is that we would all like to see wasteful consumption minimized exactly. in the here and now. I totally like agree. wasteful, destructive consumption. When I look at, you know, the, you look, look at China and these like ghost cities that they're building, right? They're building these giant cities to artificial, like to, to, so the politicians have big fat contracts to hand out to construction companies and they get to say their GDP is going up, which attracts investment. And they build these big giant cities in the middle of nowhere and barely anybody lives there. Yeah. That to me is horrible. And think of the, so the answer is always freedom. Mm -hmm. Less government, less power, less control, less management. Central planning, you know, um, Soviet Russia had reams and reams of environmental legislation and was one of the filthiest places on the planet. Mm -hmm. The way that you protect the environment is you privatize it. You know, people shovel their own roads. They don't shovel... They, they, they shovel their own driveways. They don't shovel the road. Mm-hmm. People take care of their own cars. They don't change the oil on a rental car. If you want people to take care of something, you privatize it. You give it to people. And this has been shown over and over again. When you give property in ghettos to local communities, they work hard to make it pretty. Yeah. They work hard to make it positive. They work hard to get rid of the graffiti. And they work hard to put swings in. And they work hard to take out the hypodermic needles. And they work hard to keep the bums away. And they, right? You just give things to people. And they'll take care of it. But 
fact that the government owns so much, and the fact that government has no particular economic incentive, or people in the government, no particular economic incentive to to beautify it, to protect it, to secure it. You know, just one tiny example, right? There's been a um, oh, it's some some crazy amount of money that was uh, like the reason Congress hasn't passed a budget in eight years is because they want to just keep spending that one-time budget surplus, and they get to keep spending it if they don't actually pass a budget where it's supposed to be removed. Right, And of course there's no incentive for them to not spend that money. And so I would love for there to be less excessive consumption of our precious resources in the present. But the idea that giving government the power to take more resources from us, which we'll use as collateral to borrow more money and destroy more resources. No, no. That's assuming that they would, you know, based off their history, that's assuming they would use any money gained to buy more resources. But yeah, I agree. Of course they would. What does government do with money that it gets? It doesn't put it under the mattress. Yeah, unfortunately. But I mean, the government I... has no incentive to save for future generations because the government doesn't exist. It's just a bunch of people pillaging uh, uh, the public purse. And that's, uh, that's the biggest problem. But I'm just, I'm very worried about, I think we, we have a lot of common ground, which is good. And uh, I'm just very worried about what I'm, seeing in the future you know the drought in california is an example um droughts happen but people predict droughts will get worse and water wars people think that wars are going to happen in the middle east over water again this is speculation but what i'm really worried about is the tundra in russia which is melting now and if that melts the last time that melted 250 million years ago it really killed a lot of stuff. And a lot of people think we're somehow immune to a mass extinction. I I would really say, what if our food dies? Right. Um, and it might not happen for five, six hundred years, seven hundred years. But again, I expect humanity to be here in seven hundred years. Barring nuclear war. Yeah, I mean, I get that you have worry and you have concern about these things. Um, and you should work as best you can to spread the information that you think is, uh, is important. And, um, but there are, I would argue, it's sort of more immediate and positive issues that could be dealt with you you can't control industrial production around the world right you can't control government policy of borrowing and spending and all that right you can definitely affect it and the question is will the effect be good or bad well i don't know you know for and example, you can check out we, we did we did videos on the california drought you can check this out but listen i can't you know you've, you've made your case that there's there's stuff that you're really uh, scared of i've made the case about the best things that I can do. I to, think we're in agreement on both cases. Yeah, so I don't want to sort of end up with uh, going back to the sort of um, really, the stuff that, that really scares you. You know, you called in and you asked me sort of my, my perspective on these things and I provided them and I provided my solutions. Uh, peaceful parenting. Peaceful parenting is a fantastic way to conserve resources yep. because when you have peacefully raised children, you have uh, children that you negotiate with and you don't aggress against, you don't hit, you don't yell at. When you have peacefully raised children, wonderful things happen. Um, they don't get addicted to things, which is economically and environmentally destructive. Uh, 
because it's consumption, especially addicts, right? There's consumption without production. Uh, peacefully raised children tend not to be smokers. Smoking, of course, not good for the environment, let alone your own environment, your personal environment, not good for the environment as a whole for six million different reasons. Uh, they um, will tend to pair bond, uh, have stable relationships, be gainfully employed, and they will tend not to get divorced. Uh-huh. And if they don't get divorced, then you don't have the two homes, two cars, two sets of everything, double driving, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And they tend not to be, um, the people who are peacefully raised and content and philosophical tend not to be status consumers. In other words, they don't tend to consume material goods for the sake of status. Like a, a sort of healthy, rational person does not need necessarily a Maserati to feel good about themselves or, you know, a 10,000 square foot house or swimming pools with waterfalls from the second balcony or whatever, right? I mean, they, they're content with their own company. They love the people that they're with and they have um, a positive self-esteem, which means that they don't need to impress other people. And so uh, peaceful parenting is, uh, I think, going to have an enormous impact on conserving the Earth's precious resources. And, of course, peacefully parented children, what do they need the state for? And so if they don't need the state, it diminishes the demand for the state, which reduces the power of the state, which diminishes its power, which means it has less capacity to destroy Earth's precious resources with bad policies. So I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much for the call. Uh, always an interesting topic. And uh, let's move on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Up next is Jack. Jack wrote in and said, is segregation a good thing? Stefan has pointed out that the black community had lower rates of illegitimacy under Jim Crow than after the civil rights movement. Given the large number of blacks that feel victimized and oppressed by white society, is there not a compelling argument for returning to segregated communities? When we look around the world, do we not see that culturally homogenous societies are more stable than peaceful ones? Well, hello, Jack. How are you doing tonight? Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. I can hear okay. you fine. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, you're actually a little, a little muffled. Any, can you get any closer to the mic at all? Yes, I can. How's that? That's good. That's good. Um, uh, I assume you're going through a vocoder. Otherwise, I'm just going to say I'm sorry if you're extremely bad cold or blues singing career. So uh, nice to chat with you. Yes, it's, it's one of those. And it's uh, nice to talk to you as well. Uh, I've been right. watching your videos for a while. And uh, this is a topic that I've been thinking about for a little bit. Thank you, Satan. Sorry, you sound like my evil conscience, but uh, all right. So you say sort of the black family was was stronger under a segregation. I would not put that causality together. Uh, I, I think that the black family survived segregation just as it uh, in many ways survived the evils of slavery and, and Jim Crow and so on. I think that the black family was stronger because there was no welfare state, uh, or at least the charity was, was privately administered and so on. So I wouldn't say that um, it was causal. I think it was coincidental, but I would say that if there hadn't been a welfare state, the uh, leaps forward in the black community would have been enormous. And, and as I've pointed out in the show before, the number of blacks who were moving into the middle class, who were getting into the professional occupations and so on in the post-Second World War period in America was enormous. Who knows where that could have uh, ended? Um, who knows where that could have ended? Uh, yeah. And so I think it's sort of one of these great tragedies that the welfare state came along. Maybe it's not a coincidental tragedy. Uh, one of the things that's uh, uh, really tragic about the state and its relationship to the poor is that poor people need the state more than middle class or wealthy people need the state. And so the state 
um, bases a lot of its power on the existence and prevalence of poor people. And so when there's a big group of poor people who are making their way out of poverty, that threatens state power. Yeah. And so the state usually has two solutions, which is to put economic incentives in for poor people who are escaping poverty to slide back into poverty and remain poor. And also it likes to import poor people so that it can offer them goodies. You know, like if, if everyone's middle class and above and the state says, well, I want to raise your taxes. Well, if the state says, I want to raise your taxes, I mean, to the poor, it's like, well, I don't pay taxes anyway, so go ahead and raise taxes. It creates um, oppositional groups in society taxation, right? And um, if the state says, I can give you all this free stuff, well, for people who the state says, I can give you free stuff, but I've got to, like, here, I'll give you a $1,000 credit, but I've got to tax you $2,000 to pay for it. It's immediate that that's a bad deal, immediately obvious. But for poor people... Um, it's like, okay, well, I get a free thousand dollars. I'm not really paying taxes anyway. So that's great. So the government really likes poor people because they're the most bribable of the classes. And so the government's relationship to poor people is really tragic. They, if they run out of poor people, we'll quickly run out of government. So hope that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm, it should probably sound. Hang on. You've, you just lost your vocoder. Is that okay? Do you? Uh, no, no, actually I switched mics a second ago. It should be fine. Um, okay, good. So anyway, um, I was thinking about this uh, question because of a lot of what you'd said about the Milwaukee uh, protest from a while ago. And uh, the thing that interests me is sort of the trend of the black community throughout the 20th century until the civil rights movement and whether or not the uh, efforts to uh, try to improve uh, the, the black community whether it was known in advance that those efforts would have the effect that they did. Um, because it's, it's sure. not that I support segregation. Just, just to say a little bit about myself, you know, I am mm. black and I grew up in a suburban white community and, uh, you know, I never really had any issues with, uh, I get what you would call majority white culture. Um, but, uh, my sense is that, a lot of the solutions, as as you've pointed out, have kind of backfired. And I'm wondering if it's not so much that segregation was a good thing, but is it possible that the efforts by the white community to uh, do things such as affirmative action and welfare and all of that, is it, is it possible that those things are causing backlash, um, are causing uh, blacks to feel even more oppressed? If you look at Someone like Kaepernick, who you talked about a second ago. Uh, it seems like the mixed race blacks who grew up in nice white families are the most bitter, you know, are the ones are the, that are the most angry at times. And, um, and, and I could think of other examples of this around the world. I've, I've traveled a lot. I'm kind of a digital nomad. And this is a phenomenon I've seen with other communities in other countries. Right. There's, I mean, there's a, I appreciate what you're saying. There's a lot in what you've uh, said. Is there sort of something you'd like me to focus on first? Yeah. Um, the idea that, why do you think it is that now in 2016, after, you know, trillions in welfare and affirmative action and cultural, uh, you know, efforts on the parts of whites to try to build up blacks in all these different ways, why is it that so many blacks today feel even more oppressed uh, in spite of all that seems to, all the efforts that have been made uh, in their benefit yeah that's a i mean that's a that's a big question and i obviously don't have any particularly you know the answer is this right because yeah. it's it's a it's a big question 
I, you know, there, there's this theory. I've, I've read it and I've done some research on it, but I, you know, I can't obviously confirm it. But there's a theory that goes something like this, that, that the communists wanted to destroy the West. And uh, what, you know, one of the things that they wanted to do was to uh, foment racial strife, right? To have, mm-hmm. you know, whites and blacks uh, 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 at each other's throats and so on and, and uh, create resentment and, and all of that. And that's certainly part, we've, we've talked about this in a presentation before, that's certainly part of some of the notes from the Communist International from the 1920s uh, yeah. that uh, that was sort of the, the plan. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I do think that there was a, um, uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of communism in the left, right? I mean, it's not the yeah. only thing, but there's a lot of communism uh, in, the, uh, 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 in, the, in the left. And so I think that had something to do with it. Now, if you are a communist and if you wish to use... Um, the the poverty and plight of Black America to to undermine stability and cohesion and mm-hmm. nationalism within America. Then, of course, if the Black community starts doing well or at least better, that sort of scotches the plan a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And so, yeah. So, you know, again, this this I, I sort of try not to over idealize it, but it's one of these sort of tortuous missed opportunities in in american history or western history as a whole which was as i mentioned the black uh, um, blacks doing really well um after the the second world war and you know there were of course this was still this is not to say everything was solved everything was fine i mean there was a still exclusion of blacks from the gi bill and you know some terrible stuff that happened but there was this um improvement mm-hmm. and as the blacks started to improve as black communities started to go the income started to go up as more and more blacks were joining the middle class, right? Well, what happens is they don't need the state as much. They don't want the state as much. Yeah. Right. So, so if this is your constituency, um, then they're, they're getting away, <laughs> you know, they're, like they're, mm-hmm. they're getting away. Uh, and, um, so I think one of the things that happened was, well, let's, let's give them welfare. Let's give them welfare. Now, welfare is not that tempting for the middle class, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, okay, you get a little bit of money now, but what about five years from now? What about 10 years from now, right? Mm-hmm. But if you've got a large section of society which is only starting to come out of poverty, well, then welfare looks a lot more appealing mm-hmm. because it's a step up, right? I mean, there's not a lot of Germans who want to go on welfare, but if you're someone from Iraq and you get like five times the national income in Iraq by going to Germany and getting on welfare, it's a different group, mm-hmm. right? It's a different set of motives. Sure. So I do, I do think that there was a, um, a kind of interference uh, in the progress of the black community. Okay. And it wouldn't be the first time that the Democrats had been involved in that. But listen, I know you're <laughs> jumping at the bit to say stuff and let me stop explaining yeah. the black experience to you and get, get yeah. schooled by you. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. I think you said a lot of, a lot of good stuff there. And, um, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't delve, I try not to delve too much into conspiracy theories unless there's real evidence, but you wonder about, you know, was the the destruction of the the black family throughout the '60s, '70s, and '80s? How deliberate was that? And you know, who who benefited from that? And I think the political argument, whether it's the left or the Democrats or whoever, um, there's some sense to it. But what I am kind of interested in discussing is 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 solutions. As you know, you this the whole 
theme of the show is kind of the limits of freedom and and what are the solutions in a free society to try to to try to fix that community what what should you know other communities do to to try to help uh, if if anything, um, because it right. doesn't seem it doesn't seem like all of the welfare state solutions, all of the um, affirmative action type things, or or even just just trying to buy goodwill, you know, um, mm. you know, constantly uh, talking about racism, constantly you know having protests, Black Lives Matter, and also uh, little things in culture, changing characters to make them black for more inclusion. In movies and 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 uh, TV shows, you see a lot of that. It doesn't seem like any of these things have the result of um, blacks as a group feeling more appreciated or feeling like they're a bigger part of American culture. It always seems to have the opposite result. So sure. it's it's sort of a and I could give you another example of this in another community. I've I've traveled a good bit, and in um, in uh, in Japan, for example. You have uh, the Korean community in Japan where they passed a hate speech law a while ago um, that was meant to protect them from, you know, anti-Korean protests. And that law... Sorry, protect the Japanese from... No, protect the Koreans from anti-Korean protests. Protect Koreans. Yeah, protect Koreans. Yeah, that's correct. And what's interesting about that law is that it had the effect of making both sides a lot angrier at each other. Uh, it had the effect of making Koreans feel like, yeah, all these Japanese people hate us and, you know, they're just, uh, we need more stronger laws. They were mad because the law wasn't strong enough. And then it had mm. the effect of making a lot of Japanese people feel like, well, that's kind of BS because why should they have a special law protecting them? Why are we being marginalized in our own country? So on and so forth. And so that's a pattern I've noticed that when you make an overture to a group that feels oppressed, the consequence seems to be that they feel more oppressed. So mm. it's like a catch-22. If you try to acknowledge the problems and make efforts to solve it, then they take it as evidence of how bad things are and dig in even more. I think Colin Kaepernick's an example of that. So, I mean, that's my question. Then. I, how, how do we bridge the gap? How do we actually move forward and have more racial unity? <laughs> no pressure, Steph. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. right. <laughs> well, let me just, so just back up. And, and sorry, I just... Wanted to make sure, because when I was talking about this communist stuff, if people haven't heard it before, um, yeah, in sure. 1922, the, the Comintern held its sixth, sorry, let me start that again. In 1922, the Comintern, Communist International, held its fourth international congress and put the topic of African Americans on its agenda. The following goal was established after discussions ended, and I quote, the fourth congress considers it essential to support all forms of the black movement, which aim either to undermine or weaken capitalism and imperialism or to prevent their further expansion. Right, that's, that's an important sentence, right? Yeah. Support all forms of the black movement, all those forms which aim to either undermine or weaken capitalism and imperialism or to prevent their future expansion. So using the black movement as a tool against capitalism is not the same as helping blacks, right? Mm. Um, the, the CPUSA, Communist Party of the USA, received a $300,000 subsidy, you know, this is back when that kind of money meant something, <laughs> yeah. from the Comintern for the purpose of spreading Soviet propaganda amongst black Americans. In the following years, the CPUSA recruited and trained black communists and organized protests against the U.S. government. Many black leaders were sent to Moscow for further education. The party's subversive activities quickly attracted the eyes of the government and the newly formed FBI. Yeah. The Communist Party USA also publicly advocated for civil rights and immigration reform, and alongside the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, it was one of the most powerful driving forces behind the civil rights 
movement. So I just really wanted to sort of point that out. Um, okay. So, I mean, these were people who were very interested in the black movement and helped and funded. So naturally, of course, blacks viewed that positively who were involved in those movements. I mean, mm-hmm. who wouldn't, right? That makes perfect sense to me. Sure. So, but yeah, your point about, you know, you're, you're so oppressed, we're going to protect you. You're so hard done by, we're going to try and advance you and so on. Yeah, it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really seem to strengthen things. And, and as far as certain, you know, affirmative action goes, um, that is, um, I think that's fairly well documented. I mean, just to take one example I've talked about in this show before, Jack, I mean, affirmative action for uh, blacks uh, in, in colleges means that um, uh, underqualified blacks will get college degrees. But that's just mm-hmm. natural, right? I mean, because if you lower the standards, right, then you're going to get less qualified people graduating with a degree. Now, the yeah. problem is, of course, there are many talented, brilliant, competent blacks who are sail through those degrees, no problem. But the employer has no idea which of the blacks who graduated are there because of natural talents and abilities or there because of affirmative action. Yeah, that is actually a very big problem. And I, I work in technology and on my resume and every on my LinkedIn, everything, I don't put any picture of myself because, you know, you get treated very differently if people make assumptions. I, I won't say which company. I know you know a little bit about the startup world, but I interviewed at a company <laughs> Where they basically said to me, uh, oh, well, you know, because you're black, you know, you'll really like working in this department because there's not many white people there. And it was like the most, it was the most, yes, they said that to me. It was the most awkward, creepy thing ever. Can you imagine them saying that to me about black people? Yeah, I know. As a white person, you'll really like this department because, oh my God, that's terrible. Silicon Valley is kind of a mess these days with racial politics. And I, I don't mind doing uh, coding tests and technology interviews. I, I like doing all that stuff, um, yeah. but I don't like the politics behind it. And affirmative action, it's just frustrating to to me. I don't want to be judged based on my skin color. I want to be judged on my work. And it's, it's another thing that has had the opposite effect. It has not led to more uh, racial harmony. It's led to animosity. It's led to blacks feeling like they're owed more and whites feeling like it's unfair and it's racist against them. So, well, and the, it's led to yeah. people like you being annoyed at the whole system because yeah. then you're going to get judged by things other than your, your competence. The other mm-hmm. thing, too, of course, is that um, um, uh, if, you, uh, if you hire a black who turns out not to be great at the job, yeah. let's just say because of affirmative action, sure. well, then you have to fire the black. Yeah. Right. And for some people, I'm sure that's a little mm-hmm. tense, right? Yeah, that's sort of pretty, a bit of a tense scenario, right? So it, be it is, uh, it is, it is pretty tragic, you know, what's happened. I mean, if, if it was all just merit based, then, you know, whoever sees your resume, I mean, they don't care what color you are because you graduated from the degree and you went through the same standards as everyone else and so on. So the problem is, of course, as you know, that if you get affirmative action, people coming out of a college, what happens is, um, it becomes less valuable to get a degree yes. for all blacks, right? Because the degree has less value. And then what happens is you say, well, listen, I can't put my face on my resume. And it's not because, at least, you know, tell me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but it's not because you say, well, there are all these racist people out there that won't hire me yeah. if I'm black. It's mm-hmm. because you want to be judged on your text, not your GIF, right? <laughs> you want to be judged yeah. on your experience, your, your references, your education and so on. And yeah. it's not because your face is black, it would provoke racism. It's because your face being black might provoke concerns about affirmative action and, mm-hmm. and quality of application or applicant. Is that, is that what, what, what you're, where you're coming from? 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty accurate. And uh, it's, it's interesting because I don't deny that discrimination exists. Uh, there, there was a study a while ago about how um, resumes don't get, people with resumes that have black sounding names don't get uh, called back as often from employers. So there is, there is discrimination. But at least my experience has always been that my, I've been treated weirder when people knew that I was black and they made certain assumptions about what I would want to do, how I felt, politics. And I'm happy, I, my preference is just to show people my GitHub and say, okay, here's stuff I've built, here's where I've worked, uh, you don't need to know anything else about me. Show people your what? Uh, do you know GitHub? I, just, I didn't say anything obscene. It's a place where you just post <laughs> No, I didn't assume that. I'm just like, I didn't know what okay. that meant. GitHub, what is that? <laughs> no, it's a place, it's a code hosting site. I, I actually use GitLab as well, but um, it's a Oh, so your code where, repository, so people can just like review yeah. the stuff you've done and, oh, Yeah, cool. yeah, basically, that's about it. That's, I, I haven't been in the biz for a while, so. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Oh, whoa. Now, ageism, man. I knew yeah. it was going to come down to ageism. You're that's another guy. issue right. in Silicon Valley, definitely. But uh, these days, I've done a lot of interviewing, too. You can learn a lot about someone just from their, their code repository, their GitHub profile. It gives you, you know usually most of what you need, and then you do an interview. So I, right. I, I like that aspect of tech, that it's supposed to be meritocratic, but it is, it, it's become so political now. And uh, part of it, you know, Google, they have a page about diversity where they talk about all the percentages of people, the percentages of women, the percentages of this minority and that. And it kind of creeps me out a little bit. You know, all of this bean counting and tracking of people, I feel like it's yeah. counterproductive to the goal of, uh, a racially harmonious, inclusive society. I think you know th that's kind of why. Wasn't it supposed to not matter? Like, it wasn't we supposed to like? Wasn't it supposed to not matter? Yeah. I mean, I, I, that was the big. That yeah. was the big. Oh yeah, I'll follow that. Can we just yeah. live in a world where it doesn't matter? Yeah. Yeah. That was no. No. Now, <laughs> now we must count you. And now it's got Google Analytics behind it, and now it's you know very carefully monitored and publicized, and it it feels kind of creepy. Um, so that's yeah. sort of why I started off by, by talking a little bit about segregation. I, I, I have this thought about <clears throat> cultural homogeneity and cultural diversity. And having traveled a lot, you know, th this was another question I'd wanted to pose is, is there, is there a general point or a value of having a society that's more culturally homogenous? Because mm. the United States is, is a very diverse country and you have black culture, you have, uh, you know, uh, SJW, whatever culture, you have conservative Christian culture, you have all these cultures competing. You compare that to like, say, South Korea or China, where I've, I've been a few times, um, where it's less homogeneous. Um, is it something... No, more, more homogeneous. More homogeneous. Sorry, more homogeneous. Yeah. And, yeah. and should, should we be trying to work toward a society in America that's more homogenous where we try to get blacks to sort of join <laughs> join with the majority culture or should we segregate and say okay this is your community that's your community and have just good fences i mean that's that's a very interesting question and and um i was uh, studying um south korea with my daughter and uh you know very low crime rate and very high per capita income and very strong economic growth and yeah. and all of that and uh yeah 99 point whatever percent homogenous like all yeah, and uh, uh, very and very high IQ, as you talked about. Well, that's yeah, that's that's a whole other uh, mm. interesting factor, um, and uh, you know the welfare state and its dysgenic effects on all sectors of society is, I think, uh, part part of the issue as well. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, for me, let's just assume, uh, let's just just sort of play this out and let me know what you think. But let's assume mm. that the smarter blacks were the ones quicker to break into the middle class, 
right yeah. after. I mean, just as any group, smarter whites, smarter whoever, right? Smarter sure. Scots people. And now, one thing I love about the free market is it tends to accumulate resources in the hands of the most intelligent, right? Because your income and your IQ is pretty strongly correlated. Now, just imagine, just mm-hmm. imagine, and, and the, uh, the black IQ was moving up. Yeah. Moving up. Because, you know, the, the smartest blacks were having the most babies. Let's just go, you know, straight genetics, right? And uh, imagine if that process had been allowed to continue. And this process, by the way, not exactly confined to the black community, right? I mean, it's not like uh, welfare does a, a whole lot to, uh, to, to positively affect uh, intelligence in any community, right? But imagine if that process had continued where we might have ended up. Uh, it's just anyway, yeah. it's wonderful. So, yeah. so as far, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I know. That's that's a thought experiment I have, too, about the 20th century, about, uh, I think, as you've characterized it, the road not taken. And uh, yeah. it's it's uh, it's kind of sad to think about. But what I what I try to do is think about ways to go forward. And, and from mm-hmm. from traveling, you know, I, I just to give a little bit more about myself, you know, when I was in college, I was very libertarian. You know, I was very into uh, objectivism and Rand and all that stuff. And I was very much in, uh, in that mold of thinking, but traveling around the world, um, throughout my twenties, uh, made me think a little differently about, you know, the sort of the end road of, of libertarianism in societies with different cultures. And Mm. I think of a country like Singapore, for example, which is very peaceful and extremely wealthy and, uh, pretty homogenous. I believe it's mostly ethnic Chinese with some other South Asians. Um, but, as a consequence of that, they are, have a very authoritarian government. I mean, they have, you know, sedition laws. They have, you know, you get it, can get executed for dealing drugs, you know. And right. it, it begs the question of, you know, how do you fix a culture in, uh, if, if, your, if your solution is um, just the free market or, or libertarianism? You know, is it right. possible that there are sometimes bad incentives that get, uh, you know, built up over time. I, I see that in, in the black community. What makes people money are things that are destructive to the culture. And it's something that concerns me. Right. Well, I think that I tell you just from my own personal perspective, Jack, and I, I have affinity not for race or culture, but values, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm, I'm living on a street and, and uh, somebody's, uh, a group of people come to buy the house next door to me, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say there's a bunch of white people who are communists. I know they've got a big yeah. <laughs> flag or, you know, whatever. the moving van is, uh, sure. <laughs> is pulled by, um, by the uh, evil black hearts of capitalists or something. Sure. And there's, there's a bunch of communists or maybe a bunch of social justice warriors or maybe a bunch of, well, whoever, right? The people yeah. that I would have significant value discrepancies with. Or, or maybe sure. uh, they're just, um, you know, white people or, or Asian people or whoever who are really harsh with their kids. Yeah, which I know is a thing for you. Right. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> a is. little bit. Right now, or let, now let's say that your sunny smile comes strolling down the street, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, let's say you and I exchange uh, some some words, we we chat and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I find out about you and, and whatever we're going to chat about. I'm pretty good at, I think, assessing uh, people, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I can tell you who I'd be rooting for to move in. Yeah, you. Yeah. Right. I see because where you're coming from. You see what I mean? Like, like, because let, let, let's say there's just some white jerks who are, yeah. who are, you know, they're going to be like screaming at their kid and, you know, hitting them over the head with a wet towel or whatever it is. Right. I don't want that over my, you know, fence or, or I don't want people coming over and, you know, telling me that I'm 
I'm I'm bad because I have whatever X, Y, and Z belief system or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, with you and I, you know, crack a beer on the back porch and talk about the world, it would be a delightful thing, right? Right. And and people want that. They want a shared sense of values. That's why people you vote do. with their feet. And I can say this on behalf of a lot of other higher status black people, they don't want to live in the ghetto. You don't see Will Smith and Jay-Z <laughs> living in, in predominantly black neighborhoods. They get out, right? right? They want to be, and, and that's true of all races, of all people around the world. There's, it's, it's kind of ironic. Like I, I'm a big believer in diversity, but I think if you believe in diversity, you have to believe in the right of discrimination. You have to believe in the right of people to kind of prefer their own and keep to their own. And I think well, there's- but, but what's, what's the own? Right. That's the question. Right. For me, right. like I would I would like I would, you know, feel like if you were going to move in next door, I'd be yeah. like, can, can I subsidize? <laughs> like, can, yeah. you know, that's affirmative action again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't like that at all. No, but, but you know what, what I mean? Saying. Like, I mean, it mm. would be like it would be like, yay, you know, fantastic mm -hmm. um, uh, because mm -hmm. that's a value thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that we would share we wouldn't share all the same conclusions, but I think we sure. would share the same methodology and, you know, we both mm -hmm. have strong verbal skills and probably like to debate and, and sure. all of that. And we'd have ways of resolving disputes that would be rational and, and probably enrich our relationship, like all this mm -hmm. kinds of good stuff, right? Sure. So as far as, you know, segregation and all of that goes, mm -hmm. you know, I, when you, you, you had a phrase earlier that, you know, gave me kind of the popsicle jimmies down my spine, um, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, how can we design a society that, or, or it was something like that. I, I may sure. not have it sure, down sure, exactly, sure. but I, you know, I just, it's just all about the freedom. Yeah. It's all about the freedom. I think that there will always be, or at least for the foreseeable future, you know, what is called the lunchroom test. You, yeah. you know that, right? So I mean, it, yeah. how, be, how are people going to self-segregate? Well, a yeah. lot of times it's going to be by ethnicity or by race, you know. And well, it's a shortcut because you can't test people's values in one quick conversation. You know, you can't know that. So, right, yeah. right, right. And, um, and there's also, what is it, like 90% of churches or 90, 90% either like Korean or, or, or Asian or black or white. They're, like, they just generally are. Um, yeah, you know, uh, along I, the I same. I don't. I don't fault people for that if they if they have no, that fine. preference. You know. Uh, well, as I said before, diversity is a lot of fun when you're young, but once you start got to raise your kids with values, it's kind of confusing. Yes. For you know, you get a multiplicity of you know. If you it's just imagine taking your kids to like one different religious institution every week, mm -hmm. and then saying, "I want you to be a good religious person." It'd be like, ah, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah, it would be a little. Yeah, you need more homogeneity when you're raising kids. Uh, I, I think a lot of people feel that way, which is why there tends to be this kind of uh, this kind of clustering. So I th I think in a free society, uh, no, sorry, you were going to say. Well, yeah, and I, to to challenge that a bit, I think the problem is the sustainability of a free society. Um, if if freedom leads to, for example, look at what's happening in Europe. If you have uh, too much open borders, if you have too many migrants or oh, whoever. that's not freedom. Come yeah, on, that's the welfare you, state incentives, right? I mean, you have, how, okay. how, would these, how would these, I mean, just talk about the economic migrants, right? And this is very briefly, right? I want to get you sure, sure, off sure. track. But, but, mm -hmm. but you know, the economic migrants, you know, they're, they're coming because they get five times the income with no work. Okay, but it, let's say in the United States, right? There are supposedly on the books laws that make it uh, difficult for illegal immigrants to get um, welfare. I've read a little bit about this. And a lot of what illegal immigrants in the United States do is they work very low-wage jobs. Um, so it isn't necessarily the case that all or, you know, the bulk of 
uh, migrants or immigrants are coming in to get uh, the welfare state. They're coming because there are economic opportunities in, in these countries. So if, if you have uh, open borders or you have a very liberal society, how sustainable is it over the long term? And, and there's another example I actually want to ask you about China specifically. But uh, Okay, let's uh, hold, hold that. Yeah, bookmark that one. So sure. there, there is significant consumption of, of uh, welfare among illegal immigrants. I can't remember the exact number, uh, but uh, yeah, you it's, did a video it's about high. It. I saw it a while yeah, ago. Yeah, it's high. And um, uh, 62%. 62%. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So 62% of illegal immigrants uh, are consuming welfare, which is a statistic that blows my mind, but like on so many levels. But so, so there is a problem that that's, it's not freedom of association. Uh, in America with regards to resource transfers. But the other thing, of course, is that the problem still remains a problem of a lack of freedom, Jack, because it's a lack of freedom in Mexico that is yeah. bringing people to the United States in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. So okay. um, now as far as sustainability in the long run, I think that um, a society that is truly free, and now we're talking like pie in the sky yeah. generations from now, a free, truly free, stateless society, whatever we want to call it, but yeah, a free yeah, society. Sure. Um, well, first of all, it's going to have to be a fairly bright population as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think that bright people have the most in common. Yeah. So I think that there will be a sense of solidarity mm-hmm. among bright people. And yeah. uh, so uh, as, now as far as it's sort of long-term sustainability, yeah, that's, you know... Let, let's figure it out after we get there, which will be yeah, long I, after I'm dead I, and buried. But uh, yeah, the, I think the, it is sustainable because I think that uh, s- smart people are going to have the most in common. And however it is that we're going to work towards getting smarter people, you know, the stuff that I've talked about, you know, no corporal punishment and, and breastfeeding right. and all right. of this kind of stuff, which is going to, you know, I think has the greatest possibility to to raise IQ across the board for everyone. Um I think by the time you get a really super smart group of people who really understand the value of freedom, I think they'll work pretty hard to to keep it secure. Yeah, so that really smart group of people, I mean, do they go the Trump route and build a wall? Because if they build a really great society, there's going to be a lot of dumber people from other countries that are going to want to go there and that are going to possibly have different values and are going to affect the political system over generations and gradually undermine what they built. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be the concern? Well, first of all, political systems, uh, hopefully not, right? But uh, I don't know. I mean, as far as what technology or what approach would be used to secure a free geographical environment in 300 years, Mm. you know, it's sort of like going to the founding fathers and saying, well, will there be drones? It's like, what is that? Uh, Mm. I don't know. I mean, I would leave it to the genius of people smarter than me in 300 years to figure uh, that one out. Um, But the other thing, too, you know, there's there's a possibility – and it is a vague possibility, and it's way outside my uh, anything I'm competent at. But I do sort of have an idea that um, that there could be a possibility that the world could just get smarter overall. Um, whether mm-hmm. that's uh, uh, you know whether that's philosophy. I mean, obviously, I think that uh, what I do in terms of bringing principles out for people and helping people make better decisions and all that kind of good stuff. I think mm-hmm. that what I do helps people harness their intelligence in a better way, in the way that the same way that, you know, when I, I think of my sort of intellectual life before I got into philosophy and it, it was just a kind of chaotic mess and all that just random yeah. impulses and vague preferences and then strong preferences that didn't sustain. And, you know, a lot of bouncing around like a pinball. Yeah. And, uh, so I think we can make people 
uh, we can help people make better use of their native abilities with philosophy, and I think that's going to make things uh, better in the world. It's sort of my big plan and goal and gig. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe better parenting will, will make people smarter. Um, you know, hopefully there's a soft landing to the welfare state and not a sort of sudden cutoff, and, you know, yeah. that will slowly change things uh, for the better over time. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if the world gets dumber, this all becomes kind of moot. And if the world gets and smarter, in some ways, I think in some ways it is. In some ways it is. That's oh, yeah. something I mentioned, I'd emailed back and forth with um, uh, the uh, Colin, sorry, I forget your assistant's name, uh, Mike. I oh, Mike. But I'd, I'd, one of the questions I'd wanted to ask, totally, uh, this could be a whole other tangent, is about uh, dysgenic trends in the world that um, the higher IQ societies have lower birth rates than the lower IQ societies. And, you know, what, where does that lead over a few generations? Um, you know, East Asia is a great example of that. South Korea, Japan, they all have very low birth rates um, compared to, say, Africa or the Middle East. Um, and so I, I don't know if um, philosophy or technology is going to fix that or reverse uh, the trends, uh, the overall um, level of human intelligence in the world over time. Um, but it is something that I, I think about and, and concerned about. How do, how do we get higher IQ people to have more babies and lower IQ people to have fewer? <laughs> There's no nice solution. Well, again, I, I, think I, think the, I think the market takes care of that on its own. And, you know, just so everyone understands, I mean, for, I'm sure we both are in agreement on this. Yeah. Nobody's talking about banning poor, like banning um, people from having kids or paying people to have kids. Naturally... Uh, incentives are going to, uh, oh, sorry, resources are going to accrue to the smartest people. Who, and then if those smarter people want more kids, uh, mm -hmm. they'll be able to afford them. And sure. uh, this is something that uh, I talked about with uh, a researcher on Jewish yeah. intelligence uh, some, some time back that the statistics are pretty clear that the richer Jews had more children. Sure, sure. And the sure. smarter, so, and we, we associate that the rich with the smart or whatever, right, that the rabbis who generally were the smartest, were the ones who had the most kids and all that. And the mm -hmm. poorer Jews had fewer kids. That's just the nature of the beast, right? You, you, right. If you can't afford, you don't generally have. Uh, and so in a free society, I think that there would be a, a positive movement towards mm -hmm. smarter people uh, over time. I don't time. know. I, I'm, I'm still a little skeptical of that because, you know, if, if the wealthier societies, and this, this is funny, it's something I, I've heard in Japan, that um, they're trying to give out uh, government benefits to people to have kids. They're basically giving out checks to people for having kids because their birth rate's so low. And when you talk to them, Japanese people, about it, they'll say, you know, oh, the reason people don't have kids is because the economy is less certain, you don't have as much lifetime employment, it's expensive. And you think about it, this is, I think, the second or third wealthiest country in the world. Um, if people with that level of comfort feel anxious about having kids compared to people in the third world who barely have enough to eat are having four or five kids, uh, is it really, can we really assume that a freer market and more wealth is going to reverse that trend? Or is there some other cause of, of the lower birth rate? That's what I wonder. Right, right. And with regards to Japan, their concerns about the economy is is very significant, right? I mean, the Japanese economy has been this zombie disaster for, what is it, three decades now or something like that? Yeah, and a lot but of these, I think a lot a of lot, that's overplayed. A lot of that what? I think a lot of that's overplayed, to be honest, as someone who's been there a good bit. You know, what's happened is well, not... no, but it's debt. It's yeah. debt. I mean, what did they have the highest GDP ratio in the but world? You have a what lot of public debt, that's true. 230% was the last something time I checked or something like that. Like it's completely mental, like way over what America is in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of national debt. 
and yeah, um, society. I mean, it's a very well-off, high standard of living, highest, lo- longest lifespan society. Oh, but not if you count the debt. I mean, everybody's fine until the credit card bill comes due, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the debt is 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 staggering in sure. in Japan, and you know, they're they're good at math, right? <laughs> As far as I understand it. So they're sure, going to look at that and say, well, this is not sustainable. And of course, uh, with, with whatever the culture was that produces Karoshi, this is sort of death from overwork thing. A lot of the um, young men in particular looked at their father's lives in the 90s and uh, 80s and 90s and so on and, and said, well, this is uh, this is no way to live. Like, Why would I want that? Got to work all day, work all night, go out to karaoke bars, uh, try and get some sleep on the subway home, get up and do it all again the next day. And that's no fun. They've been influenced a lot by Western culture, some of that. Um, I, mm. I don't know. And, and there, is, there is less stability. There's certainly less lifetime employment. Um, but I'm having, you know, been there for a while. I, I'm very uh, skeptical that it's, it's, it's purely an economic problem that's keeping people from, from having children. I, I think that there is a, a cultural and spiritual component to it that has changed people's values over time. Or if, you know... And what what is the component? Do you think what are the factors? I think there's a few things. You know, I think there was a lot of pride after, believe it or not, after World War II, when the country had to rebuild, had to come back from nothing, and there was a lot of pride Mm. about you know recreating the country. And then because the United States rewrote their constitution, they had much more liberal markets, they had um, lower taxes, they had allowed women to vote. They changed a lot of things. Uh, thanks to that, and the economy just blew up for decades. And I think what happened—that's a, a positive that, thing, just for those who don't know the lingo. Yes, yes, <laughs> blew up. very positive. You know, if we're talking about post-war Japan and blowing things right. up, and it's just no, no, it's no, no, positive, we're not, right? Yeah, we're yeah. not talking about anything horrible. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. saying blew up in such a good way that all '80s sci-fi movies show Japan dominating everything. If you remember Blade Runner. So, um, you know, they, they, oh, had... I, in fact, there was a movie with George Wendt, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was basically about how Americans, uh, workers were going to somehow find a way to survive under new Japanese management yep. and, uh, the Japanese yep. Borg was taking over the planet and so on. Yep. Like, you know, like of... the way the Saudis were going to end up owning everything in New York in the seventies. Yeah. Anyway, we go saw on. how that worked out. Right. And, you know, there yeah. was a lot of anxiety on the part of the West, but I think what happened is that there was an expectation that that would just continue forever. Uh, and sure. if you look at the way pe- real estate markets were in Japan in the 80s, it was insane the way people were trading houses. And when that blew up in the late 80s, I, I think here is where you have a strong argument in terms of government intervention and all of the spending and, and deficit spending that they tried to, to sustain this unsustainable market. It created this lost generation of people who kind of don't have a sense of any cultural values beyond you know, day-to-day living. And you combine that with the influence of Western culture, the influence of Western cultural Marxism and values. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Jack. I just, I just missed that part mm-hmm. about um, how they lost their own culture. Before we get into how the West, sure. you know, dominated, like in, yeah. how, how, what was the last bit about how they lost their own culture? I think that a lot, the, a lot of their sense of pride was tied to their economic success of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And when that right. was lost, it was a key component of their sense of identity as being this, the, the great Asian tiger dominating the world through economics. A lot of that was lost and then was replaced with some of Western cultural values, which was more individualistic and more about just you know, day-to-day, do your own thing, you know, don't worry about society. Um, and that leads to there's a, there's a as I said before there's a question I wanted to ask your opinion of about China which is sort of related to that um, but that's my wait uh, wait, wait hang on do we sure let's just make sure we finish finish Japan first of course, uh, and, of course, of course. Um, I mean a lot a lot of their growth was real and a lot of their growth was debt yes and um, I I think 
that uh, had a a big problem with with debt of course comes hedonism because debt is like free stuff and and when when you get a bunch of free stuff so back to the welfare state, whether it's free stuff for the middle class in Japan or free stuff for poor people in America, when you get free stuff, you get decadence, right? Yeah. You get hedonism. You get, uh, you know, why, why defer gratification? And having children yeah. is, mm-hmm. is a big, giant deferral of gratification. I think that's probably where it manifested more than anything else. I, I don't think Japan is a very hedonistic society, in spite of what you might have seen with some of their anime. Um, they're saving, people save like crazy there to such an extent that the government is a negative interest rate now just to try to force people to spend. Uh, people live in very small houses. Very, most young people don't even buy cars now. So it, it isn't so much a materialistic society, but um, there is uh, a, a sense among a lot of young people that Kids are going to ruin the party. They're just going to be a burden. And there isn't a belief in, in, in as much uh, in a family as, as kind of uh, something to be pursued as a high value. That's, that's my uh, sense of it. Um, and there's a lot of that in, in South Korea, too, and other countries. And I would assume, uh, just based upon some of the stuff that I've sort of looked at in our case selection or whatever, I would also assume that the, they would be somewhat more prone to anxiety and, and all of that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff as well and uh you know when you sort of say like i'm saying well it's a little hedonistic i don't mean materialistic i mean hedonistic insofar as like when you say well kids will spoil the party that's sort of Mm -hmm. what i'm talking about i mean you know the sort of dry fish ladies and the 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 grass-eating men like they just they don't significant proportions of young japanese as you know have no interest in in a relationship let alone sex let alone marriage let alone families yeah, and, and there's a kind of cultural malaise. And I, I guess all I'm saying is that I, I don't know that, it, that that's primarily or solely an economic problem at this point. I think that the government mm-hmm. made a lot of bad mistakes in the 90s trying to spend its way out of the recession. But um, given the standard of living, given the level of technology and infrastructure and lifespans, I, I don't, I would, I'm hesitant to believe that Japan is too poor for, to have kids. Um, I, I, think, I think it's something else. Um, if you want to add to that, that's fine. But there, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you. Um, I don't. Yeah. Again, I'm I'm certainly no expert in Japan, and you've you've been there, which gives you the advantage of anecdotes and the disadvantage of anecdotes, right? So right, right, it's like right, the right. Uh, I, uh, so correct. it's a challenge. I as far as yeah, it's a culturally homogenous, high IQ society. Yeah. And you know, it's selling more adult diapers than child diapers. Correct. Um, and what was there, some Japanese minister who's like, I just wish the old people would die off already? Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. you know, it's this huge problem. And the problem is that there is a degree of westernization happening around the idea of marriage and relationships. There was um, a teacher a while ago who made a statement at a school, something to the effect to, to the girls, saying that girls should try to prioritize marriage and children while they're younger and maybe focus on their careers later. Uh, I forget exactly yeah. what he said, but after he said that, he had some crazy backlash against him. Um, he had a lot of he took a lot of heat for it, and and so um, I I would not say that it's a a feminist society, but there's definitely some components of Western values that are are taking hold, and I don't think that that is going to help things, at least on the including first hysterical, front. not an argument stuff too, right? <laughs> I yes. Assume. Sure. Um, sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, of course, the you know the big challenge, as I've mentioned on the show before. Um, is that if women decide to have children rather than go to work, that's disastrous for government finances. Yeah. Right, because they're not out there paying taxes. Instead, they're creating babies which consume resources and don't pay taxes, right? So then you have not only um, 
a woman who's not contributing taxes, but you have a woman who's having babies uh, that uh, is going to require resources, uh, a lot of which, some of which at least will be provided by the states, of course, some by her husband. Yeah. So, you know, governments um, have an active, immediate incentive to uh, have children defer childbirth and uh, instead go go to work. Yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah, I think you said had children defer childbirth, but I have. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah. Governments have. Uh, let me. Mike, I can fix that in post. But governments have yeah. uh, an incentive to uh, encourage women to defer childbirth uh, because mm-hmm. they get more taxes and and all that. So um, I but think not to that's the... childbirth. Do governments want women to have children, right? They need future taxpayers. No, but, that... no, but uh, not politicians. There's no government, right? There's just a politician. Right. Right. Okay. No. Right. No politician. Like, there's no politician alive mm-hmm. who would say that um, my plan is to encourage childbirth now so that in 25 years there'll be more taxes because in 25 years he's long retired or dead, right? He just, he's not going to be part yeah. of his plan. Yeah, uh, that's a huge problem is how do you try to get people to do things that are good for the future 25, 50 years out? Very, very, very difficult to structure societies to care about that. Um, yeah, and if you look at the, uh, uh, you know, J- Japan, the two biggest GDP Debt to GDP ratios: Japan at two hundred and thirty percent, and Greece at one hundred and seventy-seven percent. Italy one hundred and thirty-two percent. Portugal one hundred and thirty. And there's Lebanon and Jamaica in there for reasons I can't quite fathom. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly, the, the the Western countries and Japanese countries, uh, these countries, is low, mm-hmm. uh, low birth rates. Uh, and yeah. uh, I think it's all just about. I know. I. I mean, I sort of talk about my contempt for Marxist economic determinism, but that doesn't mean that I abandon the idea, of course, Jack, that, that, uh, mm. that people respond to incentives. Yeah. And, um, I think, uh, if the economic incentives are returned to, to the free market, mm-hmm. then I think that, uh, many more sensible decisions will mm-hmm. be, uh, will be made. Sure. Sure. I, I think. Okay. So we go uh, to China. Let's continue. Our yeah. Tour. There, Sure. Right. Um, so I, I kind of piggybacking on the idea of cultural Marxism and, and it uh, affecting uh, a society or, or Westernization, as you might want to call it. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day uh, that the startup Uber uh, was having a lot of trouble getting traction in China. Actually, a lot of Western startups have had trouble getting traction in China. And um, partly because the government puts a lot of red tape in, in front of them and uh, looks the other way on copyright infringement and intellectual property theft uh, and basically you know, wants to encourage domestic companies to uh, copy uh, you know, Western companies and, and have their own domestic versions of all of them. Um, and you know, I, I had an argument with a coworker about this who was you know, really upset about this and you know, it was like, how, is, how are Western companies going to someday you know, conquer the Chinese market? And just thinking about it from the perspective of nationalism, I, it's, I, I thought about it and said, you know, actually, in a way, what China is doing makes sense because it, it makes sense if they're looking out for their own people and, and their concern is not allowing Western uh, Internet companies to dominate their markets. And, and, there's, mm. and there's two potential issues there. The first is that those companies are often in bed with uh, the United States government, the State Department and the NSA. And they might right. not want uh, a billion Chinese citizens to have all their data on servers that have back doors to the FBI or whoever, uh, which makes sense. And then the second right. argument is the argument of Westernization. The fact that every other day, if you if you you know click on Google or Microsoft or whatever, there's 
a rainbow flag. There's uh, videos on YouTube pushing politics. And they may not want that um, being foistered on their people. Um, you know, you could argue that in a, in a free society, they should say whatever. But, you know, China, obviously, has no compunctions about being a free society, a firewall to block off all Internet traffic. But just mm -hmm. playing devil's advocate, you know, I, I think I understand the logic behind not allowing Western uh, tech giants to, you know, take over. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I have a little bit more experience in this area and that uh, the company that I co-founded, we worked hard to break into China and yeah. uh, spent some time there uh, in a business capacity. Yeah. And um, the view of America from inside, as I've argued before, is, is very different from the view of America from outside. Sure. And from outside, America looks to many people and many, I think, heads of government, looks like a big, giant, dangerous, dying beast of doom. Yeah. And the, you know, because America, you know, for America has its own uh, nationalism and all that. And, and America is, um, you know, well, of, of course they'd want us. <laughs> We're yeah. great, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like my belief in my 20s and early 30s like I, if people like if a woman didn't go, want to go out with me it was like you're kidding right um <laughs> i'm yeah. great right and sure. so that that you know obviously the <laughs> women's view wasn't always in accordance with that you know which mm -hmm. was their loss but uh yeah um so for from chinese standpoints um they you know look at america and they see a lot of problems mm -hmm. and they would ascribe a lot of those problems to american culture mm-hmm and again, I know that's a big sort of blob to say American culture, but you know, sure. it's not, it's not outside the bounds completely because there mm -hmm. are certain aspects of American culture that are common. Uh, and, uh, I think they'd look at America and say, man, what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy situation, you know, in the same way, some people, you know, look at Europe and say at the moment, what the hell are you doing? And all of that. And so, um, for them to say, well, we have some oh, reservations about, uh, uh, the degree to which we want American influences in our society. Um, I, you know, I, you know, it's like if you're a parent, you know, you got a kid and there's some seedy other kid around, some seedy teenager, you know, the Eddie Haskell. Yeah. Uh, you're like, well, I don't know that that's going to be such a positive influence. So I can certainly see uh -huh. that they would look at America and they would say, well, there's a country that has had some great stuff and there's stuff that we like about it. But certainly the government stuff is uh, pretty bad. Uh, and I think it's pretty fair to, to look at that and say that's pretty bad. And, of course, the government stuff, uh, as you point out, the tech companies are not uh, exactly at arm's length from the state as a whole uh, no, in America. And there would be concerns about that too, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just think that it's interesting. It's sort of a dilemma that the libertarian in me likes to think about, that you'd think that the, the right you know, moral thing for China to do would be to open its markets and to allow its people to, you know, freedom of association. If they want to use Google and, and Uber and whatever, they should be allowed to do it. But is it not possible that it is in the longer term interests of those citizens for the government to encourage other companies to develop alternatives? It's the same logic behind all tariffs and, you know, trade, trade wars. Uh, in the case of information technology, it's a unique problem because there's this security issue. You know, I, I don't think every country needs to form its own version of every car company and every, you know, product. Obviously, trade is good. But I don't know that there's an easy resolution to the, the problem China is trying to solve by saying, you know, we don't necessarily want 
uh, Apple and Google and Facebook to run all of our people's data. There's, they're shady. Their cultural values are crap. And they are going to give the American government all this access to every person and every bit of data in our society. And we don't want that either. So, I, it's right, so again, the I problem is not, yeah, the problem is not the free market. The problem is that all of this uh, relationship between the tech giants and, uh, and the state, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's not, it's not, I would assume it's not just the cultural values. I mean, that's certainly part of it, sure. but again, sure. w- the cultural values in America, where do they come from? Well, a lot of them come from uh, heavily government subsidized and sometimes controlled, uh, media. Sure. Uh, and, uh, it comes from, uh, government schools, yeah. which, uh, give a huge transmission of values, uh, in, no, there's no, no value neutral education, right? So government schools and, 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 uh, governments, not dictated, but, you know, government-influenced media and government-influenced uh, tech companies and so on. And so if you let uh, these sort of, quote, American values into um, China, uh, you are letting a lot of American government propaganda to come in and uh, alter the minds of your citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I guess. So so is, is China doing the right thing or do we have a right to criticize them for it? Oh, yeah, I don't know that America's got a lot of right to criticize a lot of what goes on in the world as a whole. Um, But uh, uh, I would say, I mean, this is a question uh, that I was chatting about with Vox Day the other day when Mm -hmm. we were talking about the alt-right and and his, uh, this issue around tariffs, this issue that the Trump is raising. Yeah. Um, Mike, you were talking about Trump is like the uncle, right? The uncle that you knew back in the day who was talking about uh, trade deals and NAFTA and all that? Yeah, he brought to rise a lot of the things that, you know, everyone has that that uncle that's very concerned about NAFTA Thanksgiving that, you know, has to talk about jobs going overseas and, you know, the whole made in America spree in the United States. You know, Trump's giving voice to a lot of those concerns which are seen by the monster mm-hmm. vote and the immense popularity that he's on the receiving end of currently. Yeah. Yeah. People want jobs domestically. Mm-hmm. You know, why you know, and so with regards to, to tariffs and, and border controls over goods and services and all of that, yeah, of course I get it. I mean the libertarian in, in everyone and the free market economist in everyone is like, throw the doors wide and, and I get all of those arguments and I'm you know, I'm always open to, to learning new or different arguments. Mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of this stuff is is tougher. When you get the IQ stuff, and by IQ, yeah. I'm just talking about the bell curve for the population as a whole, not sort of any sure. ethnicity breakdown. But, you know, some, some guy who's got an IQ of 90, well, you can say to him, sorry, we're shipping your manufacturing job, which he was competent at and good at yeah. and gave him purpose and pride and allowed him to raise his family. And, you know, nothing wrong. Perfectly, perfectly fine, fine fellow. And you yeah. say, well, you know, we're, we're taking this... Uh, this job uh, and it's going to go overseas because there's a guy in Mexico who'll work for half the price. Yeah. Now, the economist, of course, says, well, you know, there's always going to be these transitions. There's always going to be these changes and uh, he's going to end up better off in the long run and so on. But that may not be true. Mm-hmm. If the guy is 50, uh, the, the retraining possibilities, are they enormous? Is he going to go and become uh, some uh, C-sharp or Java programmer? Um, possible. IQ 90, eh, you know, maybe, maybe not. not so much, maybe not. And, um, now of course for the people who aren't this guy or people like him, it's a pretty good deal because whatever gets manufactured in Mexico 
if you still have that job, then your goods are going to get cheaper, right? I mean, this is the big thing in, in mm-hmm. China and Japan, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. the fact that jobs get outsourced to China, well, they come back. And the reason why there hasn't been a big dislocation in America is that America borrows money or prints money, mm-hmm. pays welfare, pays unemployment insurance. And then people say, well, I can survive because the price of goods uh, is going down because jobs got mm-hmm. outsourced to cheaper wage jurisdictions, mm-hmm. right? Right. And um, that's that's not I don't think that's a very sustainable model when you got like like what 94 million Americans of working age outside the workforce now I mean that's that's yeah, not that's, a very sustainable model that's the long-term problem with the dysgenic crisis that I bring up if you have a mm. world with an increasingly high proportion of people that are lower IQ yet technology is also increasing everything is getting automated and 10 20 years there's going to be no truck drivers going to be no of a lot of jobs um, how do you deal with those people Especially if we're going to make a god of democracy and we're going to say that the highest value is diversity and tolerance and democracy, then those people have power. And we saw that this year, both with Trump and with Brexit. We're seeing a lot of the backlash against the traditional globalist vision of society, the, the, the neocon Fukuyama dream of you know, what democracy being the, the, this type of Western democracy being the final end-all, be-all form of government. People are, are moving back toward um, nationalism and tribalism out of out of security, and and so what I wonder then uh, again this is just the kind of the libertarian in me screaming out um, huh. is the free market really the solution for all of this if you if you think about wait 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 hang on sorry sorry to interrupt Jack but and that's a that's a great question but let me just yeah. back off for a second because again sure. we're, we're sort of throwing the free market in where I think we could make a case that it's not there so let me sort of give you okay. an alternative scenario where we're talking about. A genuine, um, a genuine free market, right? So okay. let's say that there's a bunch of stuff that happens. <laughs> L- mm-hmm. Listen to me getting all technical. Very general. Gotcha. Okay, Jack, stuff just happening. go with me. Bunch of stuff happens, and then gotcha. bunch of other stuff happens, and then I'm right. Okay. Um, gotcha. So <laughs> let's say that there's all this outsourcing that's going out there, right? Uh, but let's say that there is a, a, a free market, which means no welfare state, right? Right. So you outsource a bunch of jobs from America to Mexico. Mm-hmm. However, the purchasing power within America goes down significantly because people are out of work, right? And there's no right. welfare state or unemployment insurance that's pumping up their purchasing power by borrowed and printed money, right? Sure. So what happens is the uh, jobs get outsourced or, or the jobs, it doesn't all happen at once, right? But a bunch mm-hmm. of jobs get outsourced and they want to sell back to America, but they find that they can't really do uh, as much as they wanted because they said, well, the, the, the demand in America is going to be X. So then we mm-hmm. take a whole bunch of jobs out of America, but then the demand in America is X minus all those jobs that got taken out of America. So the demand has gone down. Right. Right. So what that means is that the incentive to outsource goes down because the market, because you've outsourced the market for what you outsource to sell back into is also diminished because the purchasing mm-hmm. power is down. Mm-hmm. So I think there would be a balancing aspect Without the welfare state, without government-run unemployment insurance, without uh, you know all of the other things that that prop up demand in the U.S. artificially, like uh, mm-hmm. even disability and and all that kind of stuff, and okay. um, supplemental okay. social security payments, and you name it, right? Sure. And um, so I think that there would be a natural equilibrium that would be meet, met, that mm-hmm. um, some jobs would be outsourced, but if too many jobs got outsourced, there would be no market, at least in America, to sell back into. Um, mm-hmm. for what you'd outsourced. And uh, I think that would yeah. diminish the outsourcing. But that doesn't happen when the purchasing power gets maintained with all this government financial mm-hmm. skullduggery. 
Yes, yes. I think the, there's a, a lot that's accurate there. I think kind of the X factor is uh, the behavior of other countries, that, you know, the United States isn't the only market, and that, um, you know, even if you mm -hmm. have a whole lot of uh, government spending propping things up, that money has to come from somewhere as well. Um, you know, it, it, can't, it can't sustain itself on artificial money forever. Eventually, you know, things just collapse. So, um, I think yeah, so people could say, sorry, sorry, interrupt, but people could say, well, we'll outsource from America to Mexico. But then mm -hmm. what does the, what does Mexico care about? Um, mm -hmm. the, the purchasing power in America will just sell to China or whatever, right. right? And to the next person, to the next person, and you have a race to the bottom. And, uh, if you, if that's happening at the same time as you have massive automation, um, I think that. The ideal scenario, if you have a real free market, is things balancing out. But the more realistic scenario is people taking to the political process, or even worse, to the streets to try to find mm. some sort of recompense, and it getting really ugly really fast. I think I think that's more likely, unfortunately. Well, that's going to happen anyway, though. I mean, yeah. the welfare state's going to run out of money, and and that's mm -hmm. right. The the automation thing, I you know, I've, I I mean, I don't have a big answer. I I go back mm. and forth on it because. Mm. You know, I just went to McDonald's the other day and mm -hmm. big, big giant screen. Yeah, yeah. I'm Have you okay seen this? Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. sure, sure, sure makes my tablet look terrible. But um, yeah, but yeah, sure. big, big giant screen, right? And um, I remember back in the day, uh, mm -hmm. you had to go inside a bank. It was weird, <laughs> right? And people yeah. don't know what that is anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't even know going to an ATM now. I do it online and stuff, right? So yeah. the, the automation thing, I think the automation... In conjunction with the, the the with the um with the dysgenic nature of the welfare state and other you know subsidies uh, to less responsible reproduction, mm -hmm. I think those two are kind of on a collision course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because uh, when you've got the dysgenics of the welfare state going on, then there are fewer people who are able to do better jobs. Sure. Uh, yeah. And then so and, and the other thing, too, is that there with the welfare state and with unemployment insurance, there's fewer people who are willing to work for less money. Mm -hmm. And so when you have fewer people willing to work for less money, then um, mm -hmm. the price you have to pay for people to do low rent jobs goes up and therefore sure. your incentive to automate goes up. And of course, mm -hmm. when you start to have things like, uh, well, you're going to have to pay these people Obamacare, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and, and pay for their people, these people's health care, and oh, and by the way, they might unionize, or maybe they are unionized, and yeah, it's yeah, going to yeah. be really, really tough to fire people. Oh, and you've got to have a diversity coordinator and produce charts and graphs, and it's like, yeah. and you know, and not to mention just the usual vagaries of, of the labor market, like they call in sick or or they've got a headache or they're bad tempered or they, they're, they're mean to customers or, you know, they, they, they quit to go pick grapes in Queensland or, you know, whatever yeah. they're going to do. The normal turnover annoyances, um, you automate and that stuff just poof magically vanishes and uh, you don't have to um, uh, worry about a sexual harassment lawsuit from a robot, at least yet. Um, not yet. So, not yet. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. Uh, so, so I think that there is, uh, I think the automation stuff is being significantly accelerated by a variety of non-market factors. And uh, it, is, it is a collision course because yeah. um, the people who are out of the workforce for quite some time and dysgenic incentives uh, going on and uh, automation going on. And then what? Where do yeah. they go? Where do they, where do they flourish? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say. Um, yeah, there, there are a few other 
sort of related question. I know this is kind of a weird conversation. It started with segregation and it's gotten a lot broader. Um, but I, I didn't want to circle back to one other thought, uh, if you don't mind. Um, no, please do. Which was about China or any country. And you are moving that, in next door, right? We've, we've already established that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thanks. No, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on the road. I, I go to different... Uh, oh, that's right. Digital Nomad, right? I go to different countries every year, basically. So, uh, you right. know, just trying to learn as much as I can before settling. But um, I think um, that what I wanted to circle back to is the idea of of countries um, avoiding Westernization, trying to preserve their cultures. And I think about mm -hmm. China, or South Korea, or whatever, and the degree to which they've become Westernized. And I, I wonder about that, about trying to um, maintain a specific culture. Because you had a caller a while ago. You talked about, asked you about traditionalism, and and you know what type of culture you know works. Oh, just tonight, right? Yeah, just today, yeah, about, you know, two parents versus one. And I think that it's kind of difficult to do that in, for example, the United States, in a multicultural society, uh, where you have this strong belief that the highest value is uh, diversity and liberty and tolerance, and everyone just does whatever they want. And I've thought about that compared to the, the cultural values in Asian societies, which is really, that's really not their belief system at all. They, they, you, don't, you don't hear Chinese or Korean people say that, that the biggest thing is liberty and, and diversity. What you hear is very opposite. They have very normative, specific values. And it seems to me that in America, or in the West generally, and in other parts of Western Europe, when you, when you make a, a monument of diversity and tolerance and say that those are your highest values, it's almost a confession that you don't really have any other values. And, mm. and what ends up happening is that the progressive or regressive, whatever you want to call them, elements in your society, the SJWs you talk about now, use that belief as a way to uh, continue to change the culture in, in negative ways. So you can't criticize um, you know, the problems of urban black culture. You can't criticize feminism. You can't criticize Islam. You can't criticize any of these things because you'll be lectured about how well, freedom is the most important thing. You know, people should just do whatever. And it's almost as though, like the burkini ban in, in France, right? You can't stop people from wearing burkinis. People have to be left alone. It's almost as though that belief in freedom and, and tolerance is being used against those societies. That's a, that was another question I'd had. And it's, again, no, I think the, that's the, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, th I think that's, that's very astute. And... Uh, the, I mean, the, the left has no interest in diversity. That's to complete That's red herring, right? Because I mean, if they were interested in diversity, then Ben Shapiro would be welcome on college campuses, and so would Milo and 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 mm. Coulter, because they'd be like, "Wow, this is really diverse. This is, yeah. you know, these are uh, people on the right, or people who are identify as conservatives or Republicans or whatever." And uh, mm -hmm. people would be people on the left would be going to Donald Trump rallies and interviewing people sympathetically, saying, "Well, you guys have very different viewpoints, and from yeah. let's let's have more diversity." And they'd say, "Well, let's make sure we get more Republicans on college campuses to to teach yeah. because we don't have any, and we make them into newsrooms and uh, all yeah. that." And I mean. So can I, they have no no interest in diversity at all. And it's just can I, a, can I add, a way of... Can I add yeah, one yeah, more point ahead. to that? One point to that is it's not just about uh, politics. It's about culture around the world and that global leftism is a very globalist movement and that mm. uh, part, of you, part of it you can see that they don't believe in diversity. I'll give you an example of it is um, in uh, East Asian countries, there's a lot of... I've met multiple times white foreigners who criticize those countries for not having gay marriage or for not accepting more immigrants or for not, you know, doing things that Western countries do. 
And so I always say to those people, if you really believe in diversity, you would respect the right of countries to have their own cultures and their own values. The fact that you want, you know, uh, China to or, or Singapore to do the same thing France does means that you have kind of this white man's burden idea that you have to go around <laughs> and fix all the countries of the world. They have to copy you. They have to do the, They have to have the same laws. They all have to accept gay marriage. They all have to accept immigration. They all have to accept secularism. And I say, no, they don't. They have their own societies and their own thousand-year histories. They have the right to do their thing. And, and so they, I agree with you. They don't believe in diversity at all. No. No, and that's, that's, a, that's a very, very good way of putting it. So, um, shit, what was the point that we were getting at? The idea that freedom is being used against Western countries to undermine what we used to have traditional societies. Right, right. Well, it's, you know, it's a complicated thing uh, insofar as, you know, I don't want gay people to be discriminated against, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's not fun for them. And uh, at the same time, I understand that, uh, you know, some, some religious people have uh, issues with it. And so, again, to me, this stuff is all solved by let's just, let's just be free. You know, so what the hell okay. is the government doing in the business of marriage at all? So you're against uh, the burkini ban in France? The Burkini ban in France, uh, I consider to be a tragic, uh, a tragic condemnation of Western culture. Mm -hmm. If that's where you're getting to, like if this is where we're at, it's like let's ban bathing suit. Like the, we we've lost something pretty damn important if that's where we're at as a culture. That this is our big solution, our big you know this is what we're doing. Is like like the, the problem is a bathing suit. That that is. But what is the solution if you have millions of? immigrants or people coming into your society that don't share your values that are burning cars that are rioting that are you know causing terrorist attacks what is it if i'm not saying that i support a burkini ban but it's not surprising that there would be some backlash that there would be some no attempt. again that's not surprising but the the the, the, the again the, the solution is freedom i mean um the solution is freedom and freedom of association uh, and uh, as I've talked about before, the migrant crisis is driven by the economic incentives of the welfare state mm -hmm. uh, and uh, all of that. And uh, if people had freedom of association, then it would be uh, a, a relatively easy – well, it would sort of be a non-problem. Do you think um, that you getting know, rid of the welfare sorry, go ahead. state – do you think that getting rid of the welfare state in France would stop migrants from coming there or would solve the problem of the millions of – uh, Muslims that already live there and have a much higher birth rate than the native population. Well, I, yeah, as far as that problem goes, that's, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how that problem's going to be solved. Uh, yeah. But as, as far as how, you know, the, as far as how the problem originated, uh, I think it's uh, because of a lack of freedom of association and, yeah. uh, you know, coercive redistribution of wealth and so on. Yeah. How it's going to get solved, I think it's beyond philosophy at the moment. So it's not really I, something I, I can so speak to. That's, that's the thing that concerns me, and I, I, I'm particularly concerned about this with all of the speech bans that we're seeing uh, from the UN and from uh, Western countries. In Canada, there was a guy who was arrested for a Twitter comment. I, I think this is actually, <clears throat> sorry, this is actually something I think um, uh, Rand actually wrote in a book about how um, when when is it time to stop trying to advocate for change? And she said when there's uh, censorship. And once you have outright censorship, once you, there is no ability to use the political process to, for recourse, then you're in a very dangerous situation. Then you're in a situation where it can only end in either violence or complete domination. So I, I don't know about France. I don't know about the West in, Western Europe generally. I, I don't know what their solution is. I'm just you know, posing the dilemma to you I, about the Burkini ban. I agree it's tragic, but 
there is a sense of a need to do something uh, to preserve or to defend what's left of their culture. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I mean, I, again, I, you know, I've said everything that I could possibly say about the situations, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know, I don't know where, I don't know where words are going to solve the problem anymore. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, so uh, yeah, as far as all that goes, um, so, you know, philosophy is about preventing these, these, uh, sorts of, uh, yeah. extreme situations. Uh, I don't know what happens from here with, uh, mm-hmm. with Europe. Uh, a lot of people, of course, are, have a lot of different ideas and, uh, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it will be a uh, a peaceful and positive uh, resolution for as many people as possible. We'll, we'll I'm have not to see optimistic. About, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see about that, I suppose. I suppose so. Um, I I'm really grateful. I got to ask the three major questions, and uh, I could drill in a more and more. But uh, I I've enjoyed speaking with you. So thanks for answering. Everything. Well, thanks, Jack. Uh, a real pleasure. Uh, feel free to call back next time you're in another country or sooner if you like. Yeah, uh, it was a I'll great, uh, great pleasure to chat. And um, thanks everyone so much for your time, your care, your attention, your curiosity, your conversation in this uh, great engagement that we are all involved in to bring truth and reason and evidence to the world. Please remember to drop by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Um, it's very, very important to give us the resources that we need to continue doing all the great stuff that we're doing in the world. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Uh, appreciate that. FDRpodcast.com, of course, to share the shows. And last but not least, FDRURL.com slash Amazon to use our affiliate link. Thank you, everyone, so, so much for uh, all of your attention and support. Have a wonderful, wonderful night. I will talk to you soon.